Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. These are your comics for the week of August 17th, 2021. The DC titles. Remember that we're going full spoilers. So uh, <laughs> if you haven't read any of these and you plan on reading them, you might want to wait uh, and come back and listen uh, at a later time. But before we dive into the comics, I guess we should address sort of the, the elephant in the room. Um, depending on what way you want to look at it, you could say James Tynan quit Batman uh, and quit DC Comics, or you could say that, you know, he just chose not to renew. That I would think that's more <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, he got, he got competing offers, right? Like he had this opportunity to go to a platform called Substack and create his own line, his own imprint, and sky's the limit. He owns 100% of the you know, profits and a hundred percent of the IP. And if it becomes a movie or a TV show or whatever, he reaps all those rewards. Um, and he's got to curate that and put out content on a regular basis, or he could have re upped his contract with DC for another three years and kept writing Batman. And it was a tough choice for him, uh, from, from my understanding, from what he's told me. So, or, or what he's, uh, said in interviews, I haven't spoken to him personally, uh, but for what he said in interviews and in his newsletter, it was, it was a tough choice, but ultimately I think that, you know, you got to do what's best for yourself in the long run. And I think a lot of comic creators, they, they write things like Spider-Man and Superman and Batman and what have you, cause that's what they grew up reading. And there's, you know, a chance to work on a legendary character and put your mark on a, a character that's going to outlive you. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you've got, you, you have to pay your bills, you know, comics, uh, freelancing isn't for the faint of heart. You know, there's no retirement, there's no, uh, health insurance or anything like that. So I don't blame him yeah. for, uh, for his choice. But what's so interesting is it, it coincided that like, so a bunch of creators that day announced, you know, Scott Snyder's doing a, a writing class through Substack. Saladin Ahmed is doing something through Substack. Hickman, Jonathan Hickman is is he hasn't officially announced that he's no longer show running the X Men. We know he's no longer writing the regular X Men title, um, and he's doing something over at uh, at Substack. And I sort of <laughs> with Hickman, I, I saw somebody make a comment on Twitter. I, I just thought it was hilarious. It's like, oh, so a new platform for him to have a series go on hiatus? <laughs> like you know, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of. You know, I like Jonathan. I like his ideas, but it's sort of true. He he gets these great ideas and he starts a series and then he goes for a certain. It's like then there's the new shiny, right? And he puts that series on pause and he goes and starts something. It's like fit it, fit it. Give us the ending of some of these stories. Do you even have endings? So uh, anyway, it, it's a new platform. I have no idea how it's going to work out. There's a, there's a lot to it on the back end. There's a lot of venture capital that's invested. It's digital comics. It's technology. And from um, the perspective of venture capitalists, I mean, they, they invest all this money in the platform, right? And then you have to prove that in order to get investors and, and sell it, right? Like you invest your money. And then what you want to do is you want to grow the valuation of the platform or the company or whatever it is you're putting your capital in. That's the venture part of it, right? You, you're taking a risk. You're investing your capital in this company. And what you hope is that you can prove that the company has value beyond what the initial investment was. And then you either take it public uh, once the value is high enough and you sell shares and then you, you know, make your profit that way. Or you sell it to another bigger conglomerate for a profit and you get back your initial investment. Plus, you know, you, you have whatever your whatever percentage of the company you own based on your initial investment, you get that much percentage out. Right. So if you invest 
$20,000 and then the company doubles in price, you know, you're going to get $40,000 back. So uh, that's the way that works. So it's, 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 it's a pretty interesting time Uh, whether it will work or not. I don't know, but for the comic creators, here's the cool thing. They're getting all their money up front, right? It's the venture capitalists that are taking the risk. Like if this thing fizzles and it doesn't work, James Tynan just goes back to writing for DC or just, you know, starts his own publishing imprint or goes to Kickstarter, Indiegogo or, or whatever. He's already gotten his money. So it's the venture capitalists. It's, it's, you know, you can think of it as the company of Substack itself right now that could be left holding the bag if this thing fizzles out. Well, it, the, the biggest thing that's going around the internet right now, the, the biggest get-rich-quick scheme right now all over the place is, is subscription services. Everybody is pushing that. They've been pushing that for the last five years hard. You know, oh, at, open at, open subscription least, services. Yeah. In, and in, in technology field, it's been longer. It's been almost closer to 15 yeah. years. Yeah, it's called, it's called SaaS. Yeah. Service, service as a subscription rather than just saying, hey, you, you buy the product and you have built-in support. No, you get support, but you got to pay for it every month. And that's what companies want because it's that on your books, it looks good, right? You you have a constant source of income so you can show value in your company that you constantly have a revenue stream. And that's what they, that's what these companies want to see when you, when you, if you're trying to sell your company, that's what you want to see. You want to be able to show that, yes, it has value beyond just its initial um, value because it's generating revenue. Yeah. And the, the jury is out. Like I have to decide as a consumer, do I want to pay $7 a month to, to Tinian, $7 a month to Snyder, $7 a month to Hickman. And basically instead of, you know, I'm subscribing to the specific creator who, who is putting out and pr- presumably producing a lot of quality content. And, you know, I got to, I'm, I'm old school. I love comic books and uh, I have done it before. Mark Wade had a web uh, comic uh, site that I subscribed to for a number of years. Yeah, I quite thrill, enjoyed it. Thrillbent, right? Yeah, Thrillbent. Yeah, I actually quite enjoyed Thrillbent. So I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not against it, uh, but Thrillbent was a hell of a deal. It only cost me three bucks a month and I got access to all, to all. That was awesome. That was a great deal. Access to some, all kinds of comics. Not all were great, but most were, were decent. Not any, you know, not any worse than they are nowadays, frankly. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. I mean, I, I got I got no problem supporting something if I'm getting good quality uh, work. So I'm I'm old school, but I'm 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 a new school enough that I'm willing to 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 give this another shot. And plus, as long as they're ultimately going to put it, publish it, and it looks like they, they got, they're responsible for their own publishing. I understand Substack yep. doesn't do any of the publishing. So to me, the publishing is important because I want to. I'm again, there's that old school part of me. I want to smell that comic book, <laughs> whether it's a trade paperback or a floppy in my hands. I want to have it. So, yeah, that's another benefit for the creators. I mean, they're getting paid per digital subscriber. You know, they get a cut of that seven dollars a month or, or whatever. There's depending on the, the, the creator, there's different subscriptions that you can pay for. But then when it goes, when you go to print it, you're not you're not going to have to pay any more. You might have to pay just a little tiny bit to get it reformatted for the print page, but you've already, you've done the work as a writer. You've written it yourself. You've already paid your artist. So you're really talking about a big profit on any sales from uh, the print media. What what about distribution though? I mean, they're responsible for their own distribution, aren't they? Once they publish it. Well, yeah, I mean that exactly. So if you, you know, say you, you go and you sign a deal with dark horse, like, um, basically like Scott Snyder did with his deal with, with comiXology, right? Where uh, he's going to use the infrastructure at Dark Horse when it comes time to print those comiXology comics 
because Comixology already had uh, an agreement with Dark Horse. So yeah. if Schneider wants to print those, he's gonna it'll just be th- distributed through Diamond. So it, it's the same way. I mean, Tynan could go to Aftershock, or he could go to Image, or he could go to Boom, you know, and say, "Hey, uh, you know, can you print these for me? Can you be my my you know actual print publisher of these?" And then you'll the, he, he would obviously have to give them a cut of the profits, but it still would be. You know, the, the, the cost is still not as high as, you know, say if he was writing a comic for Boom when they take a bigger a bigger piece of the pie. So yeah. uh, Scotty Young's another one who's doing something over at Substack. And, and like Rocky said, $7 a month. There are other options that are a lot more than $7 a month. And we won't we won't talk about how many of those I pulled the trigger <laughs> on. Um, but let's just say I'm I'm hundreds and hundreds of dollars poorer. Um because they get you, they get, they're like, okay, you get this special deal, but you have to sign up in the first 24 hours. And I, I pulled the trigger on a couple of those and I, I don't have buyer's regret yet, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> um, the other thing that we probably should mention is DC, like right after all this happened, DC then announced a bunch of new titles. And I, you kind of wonder, so did DC know this was coming? And so they, they kind of wait until after the Tynan news or whatnot. So then they could make their announcements for the, the new titles that are coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got to wonder, cause they, they announced a, a big, a big one by Tom Taylor. there, the medieval or dark, dark nights of metal, I guess. Dark nights of, of, of oh, metal. No, like it was deep. Dark, dark, I think it's dark nights of metal. Wasn't it? Or wasn't it? No, because it's DKOS. Um, and it just got announced today because it was DC, right. DKOS. So I'm trying to find it here. What the the uh, the S stands for? Wasn't it like swords or something like that? Oh yeah, could be. Uh, That's that Dark Knights of Sword. Yeah, probably. But it. Yeah, let me let me find it real quick. But the other one that th- that was announced was well, first they announced that Jorge Jimenez is staying on Batman. So despite the fact that. Uh, James Tynan is leaving. Um, it won't be. It, it won't be the whole creative team that's leaving. Right. Jorge Jimenez is staying on the title as well. They also announced uh, a Batman and Robin series um, that's supposed to tell, I, I guess, early days of Batman and Robin teaming up. That's being written by Jeff Lemire, which automatically gets my uh, attention. But then I wonder it's got Dustin Wynn art. And for me, Dustin Wynn art is he watercolors all his stuff now. And I, I'm just not the biggest fan of the way, the way that it looks. So I kind of have a little bit of mixed feelings um, about that, but I, I mean, obviously it's Batman and Batman comics sell. So I would expect that comic to, to sell. Uh, but yeah, the, the title that we're talking about as far as Tom Taylor uh, there was an article in uh, Entertainment Weekly. Was They kind of had the exclusive release. And it's called DKOS, Dark Knights of Steel. Ah, it takes yes. place in a new DC medieval fantasy world where Batman isn't even the most familiar resident. Uh, the world will be changed when a spaceship crash lands from a doomed planet, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, so it's basically... <laughs> Tom Taylor taking the DC universe and mixing it with 
Game of Thrones is the way he put it. Um, I'm not a fan. I, and I say this, I'm not a fan of Game of Thrones. I've never watched it. I tried to watch watch it, and it just didn't do it for me. But a lot of people are pretty excited. So it's Tom Taylor, so you, you kind of have faith that he'll make it work. Well, he's worked on it for two years, he said, I believe, in the article. That's a long yeah. time. So he's yeah. he's had that in the in the arsenal for a while. So, you know. But then it, it'll – I mean, it's got Brandon Peterson art in the first issue. And my understanding is – each of the issues is going to have to, a different art team to give a different feel. I'm never a big fan of when they yeah, do that. Either. I'm not either. I, I don't like when they do that myself, but, but Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, it sounds yeah, like it might I mean, be a pretty cool elseworlds kind of tale. So I don't mind that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then that, that title I was talking about the, the, the Dick Grayson Robin, um, by Lemire and Wynn, um, it's called Robin and Batman number one. So obviously the focus is on Robin. The world's first sidekick is just starting out at the side of Batman, struggling to find his own path from personal tragedy to superhero. It's an intimate look at the first growing pains of one of the legends of Gotham city. Uh, and it's a 40 page prestige format titled uh, with three issues. So it's interesting. They call it a 40 page prestige, but it's not, it's not black label. Hmm. Um, but again, I, I mean, the Dustin Wynn art just doesn't – it doesn't really do it for me. Um, but then I think there was one other title that got uh, announced that we probably should mention. Um, and it, it kind of goes into something that Rocky and I were specul speculating about during the last episode because we talked about how we're four issues into Infinite Frontier and it doesn't feel like we're even close to the end. Uh, well, sure enough, they've already announced the next Infinite Frontier title, and it's called Justice League Incarnate. Um, so it's that, that same team that we have been seeing with um, Thomas Wayne and, uh, and Val Zod, Superman, and supposedly they're going to be... You, you mean not Val Zod, you mean Calvin Ellis? Calvin Ellis, right. Yeah, President yeah, Superman, Val yes. Zod. Yeah. yeah. No, that... that that's his, isn't that his, his Kryptonian name, Valzad? Well, usually when they say Valz, well, I'm not when they usually when they say Valzad, they usually mean the Earth too, Superman. Because I'm always thinking about the movies. There's two movies. There's two black Superman movies coming out. One with Valzad and one, one supposedly by with Kelvin. Oh, Adams. you're right. You're right. They are different people. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Valzad. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, Calvin Ellis. Sorry, not Valzad. Yeah. I'm getting my 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 black Superman next up, but yes. Uh, so it's an, it's a five issue oversized miniseries, and it, it flows directly out of infinite frontier number six. So again, I just wonder, okay, so we had infinite frontier zero. Then we had, uh, the six issues of infinite frontier. Yeah. So that makes seven. And now we have five of this justice league incarnate and continuing the story. So if my math is correct, one plus six plus five is 12. Why didn't you just make this a 12 issue? maxi series and say you know you could have called it whatever In infinite i guess you couldn't call it infinite crisis there to use that one crisis frontier frontier crisis i i don't know it's basically like we were speculating they're just continuing the story they're fighting uh dark side over throughout the the, the multiverse and and even announced they're supposed to be a new a new character multiverse man or something like that that's gonna appear i'm assuming and and, and some hmm. new weird purple looking flash 
anyway, you can go look on Twitter, look up the DC stuff on Twitter, Joshua Williamson on Twitter, and you'll you'll see all the stuff that's uh, that was announced. And uh, I mean, I, I I don't know. We look or, good or not, not or not because you know I mean. I've I kind of been enjoying I haven't been reading a lot of solicits lately and I'm kind of glad I don't because uh, sometimes they just sort of ruin surprises. So, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, because they do they do announce that new character, Dr. Dr. Multiverse. And what yeah. has what does have me a little bit worried if I sound like I'm not like super excited about this. Um, Joshua Wimson's co-writing it with Dennis Culver. And if that sounds familiar to you. There is one title that Rocky and I really have not been digging. It's probably <laughs> the, the title that we have liked the least uh, since Inf this Infinite Frontier uh, yeah. publishing initiative started, and that's Future State Gotham. And that yeah. started out being co-written by Dennis Culver and Joshua Williamson. So I don't know. I just worry a little um, bit. that. Well, hopefully they'll color it. Hopefully it'll actually have color. It won't be all black and <laughs> yeah, white. Yeah. Good grief. Yes. I, yes. I think it will definitely be colored and that will, that will definitely help. So anyway, a lot, a ton, a ton of comic news and a, uh, a ton of DC news. And again, you, you, I just have to wonder about the timing of all these uh, announcements. And Oh, actually before, before I forget, there is one more because uh, there's never enough comic announcements, but you, like I said, you do wonder about the timing, Tynan leaving all these other uh, people going to digital uh, with Substack and whatnot, and then DC announces this giant slate of um, of really great books. There's one other that we should announce because it's by one of our favorite writers and friend of the uh, the show, Stephanie Phillips. It was announced today. She's writing a Wonder Woman title called Wonder Woman Evolution with Mike Hawthorne on art. So you wonder what Mike Hawthorne was going to do when he left Daredevil and left uh, Marvel. Well, he's illustrating a Wonder Woman story, and it's eight issues, and Wonder Woman's got it to step up and act as Earth's representative in a cosmic trial to decide the fate of humanity, which is sort of a trope, right? It's happening. That's the story that's yeah. happening right now in flame from vault. Every time I hear that uh, somebody had to act, has to act as Earth's representative in a cosmic trial. The first thing I always think of is encounter at far point, which is the first episode of star Trek, the next generation. Yeah. Q puts uh Picard on trial as a representative of the human race. So, but anyway, it's Stephanie Phillips on Wonder Woman. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely. I'll, I'll give that a shot. Yeah, I mean, so I, I I like Stephanie Phillips. She's she's been making me happy with her Man Among Ye and some of her other titles, and I've been enjoying her Harley Quinn. So we'll see how she does on one on on Wonder Woman. Fingers crossed. Yeah, so, yeah, a lot a lot of a lot of news, a lot of comic news, a lot of DC news specifically, and it's so interesting because. Uh, it's funny. I, I have friends that own comic shops that are retailers and they'll reach out to me or I'll see them put something on Twitter, what they hear, right? Like this is the news. This is actually what's happening. But then people that aren't as in the know as you and I, and, and don't pay as much attention, they hear it like through the grapevine. And then you like, uh, somebody was saying that they heard Tynan was, you know, never going to work for DC again. He was going to stop, uh, writing, uh, something is killing the children. He was going to stop writing department of truth. He was going to stop writing nice house on the lake. Cause he'll never work for DC again. He had a big falling out with them Good and grief. he's only going to create these web comics. And that's not at all reality. No. That's not even close to what's happening. 
He owns Nice House on the Lake, even though it's printed through DC. He's going to keep creating that. He's going to keep writing something is killing the children. Yeah. They're developing a TV show. Why would he stop? He's going to keep writing Department of Truth. He's just going to do some new stuff on a new platform. And there's no animosity between him and DC. He specifically stated that he'd be happy to go back at some point. Yeah. So, it, but it's just interesting what people, you know, they, I don't know why they like to gossip in the way they do, but they, I, I don't know. Maybe they're just looking for a reason to be angry. And it seems like a lot of people fall in that, uh, that category these days. But uh, anyways, let's get on to the books we're going to talk about. There's uh, quite a few good ones this week. Uh, let's start with Nightwing. Leaping into the light part six. And I'm, I'm assuming uh, based on the fact that Nightwing 84 is uh, part of Fear State, that this is finally bringing the first arc of Nightwing to, uh, to a close for Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. And I think they've done a, a fantastic job. Uh, so Tom Taylor's writing, Redondo's on art, Adriana Lucas does the colors, Wes Abbott does the letters. Um, yeah, I, I, I like this, but let's get Rocky's thoughts first before I, uh, I talk about why I really enjoyed it. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, this was uh, this was actually a really nice issue. This is uh, not necessarily a lot happens in this issue, but um, it's very typical Tom Taylor in that it's 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 definitely a feel good issue. This issue picks up right up where right off where the last one uh, last issue in issue eighty two it was revealed that um, Mayor's, uh Mayor Zuko was uh, is is in fact uh, Melinda Zuko who is. Dick Grayson's half sister, and and here uh, it, we soon discover that the conversation that she has with uh, with Nightwing is uh, it's interrupted by Blockbuster because Blockbuster, unbeknownst to her, to her, has been following her, and they believe he, Blockbuster, of course, who has uh, the corrupt commissioner on his side, believes that Nightwing is is in the building actually uh, attacking. Uh, Marizuko or assaulting her or and and so he's actually there and they're, meanwhile they're having this conversation and and Melinda uh, Melinda's quite happy to see Dick and she basically tells him that you know look I'm she's basically she's taken down mob bosses before and she basically tells him that she's undercover is really what she tells him and you know Dick is very uh, he's very he's he doubts her he has some doubts he finds it hard to believe, but but he notices, you know, he reads her, he gets a sense of her breathing and her pulse, and there's no physical signs that she's lying, and 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 the the partner that she has, or at least her bodyguard that's there, uh, it seems to be mindful of it, and there's there's no, uh, you know, there she seems to be on the up and up, uh, but when they realize that Blockbuster's out outside the doors waiting for them, they have to make a good show of it, so they put on a show, night they you know they. Nightwing, I guess Nightwing ties them up. So um, Melinda and her bodyguard, the mayor and her bodyguard are, are tied up. And so when, by the time Blockbuster, Roland uh, Blockbuster, by the time he ro uh, he rolls in there, he, he they look tied up. And so they it, it's good cover. Meanwhile, Nightwing takes off and Blockbuster follows him and chases him. And there's just this is where Redondo's art really takes off. There's some double there's some double page spreads here that unfortunately those watching on on YouTube here won't be able to see the full double page spread. But it's absolutely gorgeous. I can't wait to pick it up and to get the floppy in my hands. But uh, gorgeous work. And Nightwing does get away. And 
well, f- frankly, he he when he, he finally gets away, he and uh, and he's so exhausted because he's still injured from his from his injuries that he got through um um uh what's the guy's name Hart? What's what what was the villain? Heartless, I think uh, that was the villain's name. Yes, uh, I think so. Yeah, but in any event, it, it was uh, the villain Heartless uh, injured him in in a couple of issues ago, and so he's still injured. So he sleeps for two days, <laughs> and when he and basically uh, he uh, he wakes up and he has a long conversation with Oracle. You know, great character work here, and he decides he has to decide what he wants to do with all his billions of dollars that. Uh, Alfred uh, left him and he decides to open up the the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation and he before he does that uh, Tom Taylor in in you know again he's so good at drawing on what what the strengths of these characters are and Nightwing got his name from Superman Superman actually gave Nightwing his name and so it, it, it there's some there's a lot of uh there's some beautiful narrative symmetry to that and continuitist continuitist symmetry to that because he asks superman for advice about what he should do with the money because he doesn't he's not quite comfortable enough for whatever reason talking to uh to bruce and you know superman obviously gives him encouragement and even asks uh, uh, nightwing to keep an eye on his son john and give his son john advice from time to time because he feels his son john will need it and of course tom taylor is also writing kalal son of superman so again there's some synchronicity there which i like to see i like to see my dc comics because i collect most of them <laughs> and we review most of them i like to see that synchronicity and continuity between the between the titles and then some beautiful scenes where they're sitting on the top of the the daily planet and they're and they're they're, they're talking to each other and just beautiful scenes uh, rendered by uh, Fer- uh, Fernando Redondo and um, uh, Bruno Redondo sorry and uh, and then the next day he gives his speech and he announces to the world his that he wants to that he wants to create a foundation and battle poverty in Bloodhaven and before that there's a beautiful scene between him and uh, Barbara Gordon I mean I mean Tell you what, and Dick and Babs shippers are gonna love this. Beautifully rendered, beautiful kiss, but uh, share a moment of intimacy between the two. And she says, "Go get him, boy wonder." And it's just sort of like I mean, this is a real feel good, feel good moments, a feel good comic. And uh, you know, uh, I, I've talked to some people who aren't really loving this Nightwing series, and I ask them why. What? What? Why don't you love it? And and it's because they feel that there's not enough. They actually want more story. They they feel that there's too much that the that the character work, it's just sort of like it drags it down, it slows it down. Uh, whereas you know, I personally feel the opposite. I actually like this. I I don't mind if a story is progressing slowly if I get some good quality character work. Uh, but some people are a little impatient. And they want the plot to uh, proceed further because there's no question here. Not a like. You know, this is going to probably be a very slow build in terms of his eventual takedown of Blockbuster, but the stakes are being raised here, and it's clear that the agenda that Blockbuster has with uh, believing that he's got Mayor Melinda Mayor Melinda Zuko on his side when she's really working to take him down, with with Blockbuster on one side, and now clearly uh, Dick Grayson with the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation on the other, trying to you know. Uh, un- undoubtedly develop those areas of the city where there's homeless homeless people and to battle poverty you can bet dollars to donuts that's going to uh that's going to th- those two forces are going to come into conflict and 
a great moment with him and Batman. Batman calls him and tells Dick, you really honored Alfred today. Thank you. And thanks him. And just really good moments. And, uh, and then at the end, there's a tease that, uh, heart, uh, that, that heart, that the heartless character is going to be, uh, you know, making further steps. And it, it this heartless character there in the, in the final page seems like a really sick puppy. He's actually all the hearts that he takes, he actually puts in jars, uh, very disturbing. Uh, and he'll says, I'll have to take his heart before he gives it to the city. So <laughs> it's <laughs> leaping into the night, part six. I, uh, you know, uh, it, this is this opening story arc. Definitely. It, this sets the tone. This, these first six issues have set the tone for what the future is for Dick Grayson. And I think Tom Taylor's done a very good job and I'm definitely on board moving forward. What about you, Jace? Yeah, I mean, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, does a story that's filled with character moments make a cohesive narrative, right? Because this issue more so than any of the previous, like you said, it, it does, ha it, it's just filled with all these moments. You know, there's the moment early on between Dick and, and Melinda, and I still have my doubts whether or not she's really his sister. Like I, I had my doubts right off the bat, right? I said, she's some FBI agent. She's undercover. That's her cover. And then, you know, we, we met her mother and her mother had the whole story about how it went down and whatever. And so then I was thinking, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe she is really Dick's sister. And now I'm kind of back to thinking the other thing because she basically tells him that she's taken down crime lords before and she's here to take take down it. So she could be just playing Dick Grayson. It could be all a cover and her mother's just another agent of, of the FBI. So I'm still not 100% convinced that she's Dick Grayson's sister, but regardless of whether she is or not, we know, she, as we suspected, she's not really a bad person. She's not a, involved in, in organized crime. She's actually working undercover to, to try to prevent it. But it is a nice moment. You know, Dick does realize, I mean, he's a good detective too, trained by the best, trained by Bruce Wayne. So he knows that his sister's on, on the right side and that, that gives him some hope. But from there to a little bit of action fighting against Blockbuster. And then, like you said, the moment with Barbara, followed by an, a great moment with Superman where Superman basically says, in case anybody was doubting, even Superman looks up to Dick Grayson. Every, and Superman says, everybody, everybody looks up to you, Dick. You're so, you know, respected. Um, and then tell Superman his plans about the uh, Pennyworth Foundation. And Superman, you know, is, I, you know, I couldn't think of a better, better role model. You know, all of us look up to you in, in some way or another, Dick. So, again, another great moment. And then the moment between Dick and Barbara, like you said, where they share the kiss. And then, of course, the moment where Dick Grayson announces this initiative. He's given all the money to this foundation that he's going to start called the Alf uh, Alfred Pennyworth Foundation. And then his phone blows up with different members of the Bat family reaching out. And Batman actually calls him. Uh, and Dick is saying, hey, you don't usually call. And there's a great moment, you know, there as well. Um and then, yeah, a very creepy moment with with Heartless at, at the end. So does it flow the best? I'm not sure that it does. Um, but I feel like each of those story points hits really, really well. So I can see the point of those that are saying not enough has happened yet um, because Taylor has taken the time to give us these character moments and, and uh, let the emotion of these moments kind of be impactful. I mean, think back to... The very first issue Tom Taylor wrote where Dick Grayson was reading that letter from Alfred. And to me, that was the most impactful moment of, of that issue and of the series so far. 
And it was at that moment where I was like, well, I'm in, right? And if these moments are, are landing like that, different moments for different people in different ways, then I, I think that that's a successful comic. It's a successful story. It's a successful piece of art because art is supposed to make us feel things. It's supposed to elicit a reaction. That's the point of it. So in my mind, it's it's successful. Is it the smoothest um, pacing in this issue? Nah, not necessarily. But I think overall, the six issues probably read pretty well together and they flow pretty well and it probably feels like a pretty big chunk of story. The argument could be made that, you know, most story arcs are five issues now and you get that amount. What The amount of story that Tom Taylor's given us in six issues, most series give us in five. But just like Rocky said, I'm willing to give him that extra issue because these moments are landing so well and they are such great moments. And Dick Grayson is such a big part of the DC universe. Um, you know, just like Superman is saying here, he's he's sort of the heart of it in a way. And so I think it's important to have a story like this with Dick where he's kind of getting his due. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's fine. And, and the other thing is just because Tom Taylor paced the first arc this way doesn't mean the pace is not going to pick up now that he's kind of put all the pieces in place, right? Now that we know Melinda Zuko's kind of working from the inside, we know Heartless is going to try to derail Dick's plans for the uh, Pennyworth Foundation. We know Blockbuster is diametrically opposed to him because Blockbuster and all his cronies, they, they feast off the poverty um, and, and the, you know, the crime that comes along with that. So he's, he's not going to want this foundation to su succeed any more than, than Heartless will. So it's like all the pieces are, are in place on the chessboard now. So there's no reason to think that the narrative won't speed up and we get more action and, and things happen quicker and maybe that'll appease the people that think that it's going uh, a little bit too slow but um i think it's fantastic i think bruno redondo's art is amazing um he's the perfect artist for this uh and yeah i'm i'm fully on board fantastic issue fantastic first arc right on uh, all right let's move on to uh the next one i'll get this anthology out of the way it's superman Red and blue, number six. We've got a, a really cool main cover from Evan Doc Shaner. And then uh, the first story is called Hissy Fit, story and art by Sophie Campbell. I sort of don't really have that much to say about this first story. It's uh, a story about Streaky and Superman and Supergirl are <laughs> – Look, I guess it, it's the story of Superman relocating all his stuff from the Fortress of Solitude when it was at the North Pole to the Fortress of Solitude when it's in the Bermuda Triangle. And for some reason, they decide they're going to stick Streaky in a little kennel to transport her, and she doesn't go for it, and she freaks out and starts using her heat vision all over the place and cutting ships in half and whatnot. So she ends up where she needs to be at the end anyway. I don't know why they just didn't do that in the first place. I guess if you're a cat person, you'd like it. I just thought it was okay. It was like, eh, okay, Streaky freaks out. Got it. Don't have anything else to say other than oh, that. Yeah. You, you are far, you are much more polite than I am. Uh, this is where people discover that uh, Comic Boom is not a pet lover. Uh, <laughs> look, I don't like cats. All right, I just you know and uh, you know I I you know I and why on earth Superman or Supergirl love cats? I've got no idea. And there's no way in hell that I mean what Streaky does here is. I mean, look, let me put it to you this way. We put Rottweilers to sleep 
that bite human beings. Here we have a cat that destroys a cargo vessel in half, puts it in half. Undoubtedly, I mean, it's by some by the grace of God that somebody wasn't killed. And this is an animal that should be put to sleep. They should get kryptonite injection inside this cat, put it to sleep. That's what it, Streaky the cat deserves, but they don't do that. You know, and apparently Streaky just threw a hissy fit because, you know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to be caged and they were, they were just moving to be clear what they were doing. And it, I, this wasn't clear to me at first, but they were just moving there. They were, it was moving day. They were moving, they have a North, a North Pole fortress to a South Pole fortress. And that's on the last page. So they were just relocating is really what they were doing. And, and they made the mistake of, Telling Streaky, just you know, putting Streaky in a, and in fact, it, even that was kind of ridiculous. If you have a flying cat, why do you need to put your cat in a, in a in a cage and and then fly the fly with the cage? Why don't you let the cat just follow behind you as you fly to the other fortress? So the whole premise of the story, I think, was a little bit nutty. But clearly, this is just for fun, and I'm obviously I'm I'm being sarcastic here, people. I mean, I I'm just saying like this is <laughs> this is a dangerous animal. <laughs> yeah, I don't for sure. <laughs> Anyways, I had fun with this. I actually laughed out loud because in in, in my own personal uh, circles here, I, I'm known as a person that's not a big fan of cats. So when I read this, I, I couldn't help but chuckle. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I, I, yeah, I agree with you know. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I'm like, what? This cat just split a boat in half. It's gonna kill people? Like that's not a hero. <laughs> I shouldn't be allowed to wear the Superman symbol. And I, all I could think at the end was, you know, Dexter, that Red Lantern cat. That's exactly. evil. Man, I would take Dexter over this cat any yeah. day. Streaky's <laughs> making Dexter look good in this, uh, in this story. Anyway, the next one's called The Scoop. It's by Matt Wagner. Colors, letters by Dave Lamphere. Uh, and th this was a fun one. It's basically a story of Clark Kent. And how his stories always end up on page 13 or page 18 or page whatever, um, because he's struggling to, he, he feels bad if he were to sensationalize his, his himself, basically, right? Like mm -hmm. Lois Lane's stories are ending up on the front page because it's all Superman, Superman, Superman. And Clark's fo focusing on sort of the reasons behind. Like if Superman fights a giant ape that went crazy, he's going to write a story about poaching, you know, illegal poaching and, and whatnot. If a train uh, runs out of control, he's going to write an expose about the Metro Commission's lack of oversight. You know, he, he's, he's getting at the root of the problem, the idea of um, a reporter being kind of a, a warrior for social justice, whereas Lois Lane is just writing stories about Superman and getting the front page over and over and over. And Clark Kent's reluctant to do that because he feels like he's cheating, right, because he is Superman. And then at the end, he sort of realizes that the story that he, he could tell is uh, his own story, right? And uh, he does start typing it. My, my birth name is Kal-El. I'm the child of two worlds. This is my story, blah, blah, blah. So kind of interesting and and fun. And it, it, it felt a little um, a little retro based on the art style of, of Matt Wagner. You could see this, you know, it's, it's art deco uh, in terms of the buildings and, and uh, the robots he's fighting and whatnot. So I thought it worked. This was an enjoyable one. What'd you think, Rocky? Yeah. I thought it worked. Uh, you're right that it's dated, but I, it's dated in terms of its, uh, uh, I guess it's, it's sensibilities. And you kind of got the sort of, the, I got like a fifties vibe to it. Uh, yep. because I, I, because if this was a modern day tale, I'm sure that there was 
I, there'd be some people that might be upset with Lois Lane's portrayal because Lois seemed fairly one dimensional, you know, pining for Superman and just, you know, going for the story of Superman. And I thought it was maybe a little insulting to Lois Lane that she didn't seem concerned about the actual story behind the story. Lois Lane even told him at one point in the story, even told Clark at one point saying, you know, I used to go for this story behind the story too, but then I realized that's not where the real story lies. And well, that is where the actual story lies. I mean, if you're about truth, justice, and the American way, I mean, that is where the story lies. And I would have thought Lois would have would have would have would be able to get not only the first page, but also also the story behind the story. I also think it's a little bit forced because I do think that a lot of those stories that Clark Kent got would not be on page 16 or 17. They would be on the first page uh, because they were actually fairly big revelations, even within the context of the story. I mean, I nitpick here. I got the, the entire point of this was that Clark realizes that he needs to be the author of his own story and that people can report what Superman does, but the actual substance of who he is as Superman should be a story that he controls. So I know that was the theme, and that did shine through. I thought it did come at the expense of uh, some of the characters, like Lois. Uh, I thought I thought, I thought, thought it maybe could have been reworked a little bit different, but, but I nitpick. But uh, again, I enjoyed it, and I actually really enjoyed the art, I have to say. Uh, Matt Wagner did a good job here. Yeah, fantastic art. Uh, next one's called The Special. Uh, Tom King writes it. Paolo uh, Rivera is the artist. Steve Wands is the letter. Uh, I thought this was the best story in the book. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a longer, longer one. Uh, and it yeah. goes full circle from Clark eating at a diner as a little boy with Ma and Pa Kent all the way to Clark then eating at the, the same diner um, with John. And it has one of my favorite, my favorite, favorite pictures of John and Superman together flying that I've ever seen. Um, and John's just wearing like jeans and a white shirt, but he has like a red blanket tied around his neck and he's flying next to his dad in the sky. And it's like, see that, that right there, that image right there by Paulo Rivera is exactly why we didn't want or need John Kent aged up because we needed more of that father and son, as opposed to father and, you know, father and young son, as opposed to father and almost yeah. grown son. Um, but I, I, I just, I thought this was a great story. Um, you know, it's just these pictures over time of the Kent family in this time, talking to, to one particular waitress as, as she gets older, Annie is her name and you see her age and, and we see her and Clark talking you know, at these various periods of, of Clark's life from, uh, from, like I said, from when he was a small boy to him, um, getting advice when he's older from, from Pa about his responsibilities to Clark telling uh, Lana that he has to leave Smallville because he, he needs to be part of the larger world. Clark coming back home to visit his parents, Clark there eating at the diner with Lois when Lois is there to meet his, uh, his family for the first time and how nervous she is to Clark going back to the diner when he's there to visit his mom after his father passed away. And Annie uh, basically t telling Clark things about his father that Clark didn't even know, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, your dad was so proud of you. He was in here every day, Clark this and Clark that. Um, that's where the, the name of the, the story comes from. You always ordered the special, no onions. Um, and I, 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 I kind of wonder, so, Tom King is good friends with Mitch Garrods. Mitch Garrods 
hates onions to the point where he says onions aren't even food. <laughs> Next time I see Tom, I have to ask him: Is that is yeah. that a nod to Mitch Garretts that it's? Uh, that it's <laughs> I'm no, sure it is. No, no onions. Um, and then finally, when Clark goes back, and, and this is where the story really, really shines, when Clark goes back to the diner at the end, um, after you know John's off doing whatever, and Lois is not there, and it's just the diner's practically empty, and it's just Clark and Annie, and Clark invites her to sit down, and and Annie's talking about how. She doesn't know. She she doesn't think her life is that special, right? She 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 refers to it as a black and white life. She's lived a black and white life. Her, her life hasn't been that exciting. Um, and she asks Clark, "Have you ever seen the colors? Are they pretty? Are they as pretty as I imagine?" And and Clark tells her, "You know, you've always been a part of our lives. Like, you know, you've been a part of so many important part of our lives. Every time I come back in, you're always here, and time and time again." There's the blue of your eyes, the, the red of your cheeks. It, it feels like coming home. And that's something really special. And in the final panel, uh, we see Annie fully colored because the rest of the time she appears in black and white. I just thought it was a really impactful image. Um, and it's, it's so interesting. And what's so great about this story, I mean, yes, Superman does appear. And there is one panel where he's fighting a robot when he, he's telling Annie on a visit back that, you know, life's had its ups and downs. Um, but this isn't, it isn't a Superman story per se. It's a Clark Kent story. It's a story about who he is and who he is, is based on the values that were instilled in him in the place that he grew up by his parents, but also by the other people that live in Smallville, people like Annie. And it's so important to remember that, Clark has never forgotten his roots. Um, and, and to me, it's one of the things that makes Superman such a great character, makes him so relatable. Uh, he's the most powerful character in the DC universe, but in so many ways, he's also the most human. And this is what the story shows. So um, in, in my mind, you can't go wrong with a, a Tom King written Superman story. I mean, the Superman up in the sky story you wrote was also fantastic. And he just, it just makes me wonder why isn't Tom King writing Superman on a, on a monthly basis? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's tough to, to nail it with this level of, um, of beauty and, and perfection every time. But I, I, I don't know. I just thought the story was, was fantastic. And the Paulo Rivera art, um, Paulo's art's interesting. You know, I talk about Superman and particularly in this story being a very human character Paolo Rivera's art, I feel like it can be very dynamic at times, and uh, he, he's fantastic at drawing action, especially with a lot of characters, big melee kind of things. He's, I feel like in a way his art's a little restrained here, which perfectly suits the story. And if I had one word to describe his art, it would also be human. Like it's so, it's so real here, and not to say it's like photorealistic or it looks like pictures or photographs or whatnot. It just, it feels grounded. It doesn't feel over the top. It's, it's soft when it needs to be. It's poignant when it needs to be. It's emotional when it needs to be. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this get nominated for some awards, to be honest with you next year, best short story or something like that. I really do think it's that 
it's that good. So yeah, that, uh, it, uh, it it's as impactful as uh, I think Daniel Warren Johnson's uh, Superman story in the, in the last Superman uh, Red and Blue uh, in issue yep. five was was quite good as well. And and there's talk of that. There's rumors of some people wanting that to be nominated as well. So there's something about Superman that can inspire these types of emotionally laden stories. And uh, this one, and again, I mean, I don't know what's going on here. I've been, uh, the manner in which I've been uh, complimenting Tom King in the last six months, I, I'm going to have to get my head examined. But uh, no, I mean, <laughs> hey, at least I know I'm not a hypocrite, man. And when he does a good job, I'm going to I'm gonna call him out for it. So good job, Tom King. I enjoy this. You know, yeah. it's funny. Uh uh, you, you say you love the, uh, the. This is really about Superman. And when I read this, uh, and you you alluded to this as well, but I, I thought this was a story about Annie, and this was a story about all of us. You know, the special. The special might be. The funny thing is, is that we we never did know what the special is. All we know what the special is is that there's no onions on it. We don't actually. Yeah. I looked at it, so he could have. We don't even know if it was it a hamburger with no onion. We don't know what it is. But I think even even not knowing that. Is so extraordinary. The only thing we know is that there's no onions on it. And here's what I get out of this and what's beautiful about it is that, uh, and it reminds me of something that uh, in Buddhism, there's the idea that a true master always does everything consistently all the time. In other words, you're kind, you're compassionate, and you do it all the time. In other words, your behavior never really changes. You, you stay consistent and you, and you do the right thing all the time. And, and here it is every Friday morning, Jonathan Kent, goes, orders the special with no onions. So what's the special? Well, the special is is illustrated in all the various scenes through Clark Kent's life and through Jonathan's life, his, his life and times, and ultimately even in his death. The special is friendship. It's service. It's gratitude. And it's sometimes no onions. And and that familiar face that, that gains color the more you see it. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. The symbolism here, the metaphor, the theme... Uh, you can read this and say it's a Superman story. I can read it and say it's an Annie story. It can be a Jonathan. It's a story of all of us. That's the beauty of it. It speaks, I think it says something different to everyone who's reading it. And if that isn't a masterful story, man, I don't know what is. Well done, Tom King. And the art, yeah. again, Paolo Rivera, fantastic art. Yep, exactly. Uh, next one, Son of Farmers by Darcy Little Badger. As the writer, Steve Pugh is the artist. Pat Brasso does, uh, Pat Brasso. Let me get that correct. Uh, does the letters. Um, I don't know. I thought the art was good. D very unique use of the colors, you know, red, white, and blue. Uh, more different than, than we've seen the colors used before. But this one didn't really speak to me that much. Um, it basically is, is Mon Pa Kent teaching patience and persistence and hard work. Uh, and Clark learns all those uh, lessons and learns that he – what he could, he's capable of with his own two hands and eventually even saves a man's life by giving him CPR uh, as Clark Kent, not as Superman. Um, but I, I don't know. It, it just, it felt like it was missing something for me. I, I don't even really have that much to, to say about it. it. It was okay, but I feel like in, in some way it must've missed the mark. Cause I feel like it, it should have, I should have had more of a reaction to it. And I, I didn't really, I was just like, huh, okay, that was all right. Yeah. I, I agree. I, well, you know, I, I think the central phrase of this entire, of this particular uh, story called Clark's Field is that as the son of maize farmers, I learned how to fight for life on earth. Like basically, like you said, he was, he was, he was, I think that uh, writer uh, dance little badger uh, is trying to convey the idea that 
all the, the central, you know, all his, his strength and everything he learned as a young farm boy, he's taken with him as he's gotten older and it's helped him save so many lives. And I didn't see it, quite frankly. <laughs> I didn't yeah. actually see it. I, I didn't. That's where it failed for me. I didn't see how him being a maize farmer had anything to do with a lot of what I mean. I mean, being ra- you could be raised with good values anywhere. I don't, I'm not I didn't really see how. I mean, I, I got some of it, how, you know, if during a drought, you can have disappointment. You could have, you know, I mean, I get it. I, I got, heck, I, half my half my family is all Saskatchewan farmers. I mean, I, I, I'm well aware of the of the ups and downs of a farm life, uh, uh, despite myself being a city boy, a small city boy. But uh, in any event, uh, it, it did miss the mark for me too. And, and I don't, um, you know, I understood the point of it. But it it never really hit home, and I wasn't a big fan of the pink. It looked to me it looks pink and blue, and it didn't quite really, yeah. you know, didn't quite hit the mark for me. Uh, but but yeah, but I understood it. I understood what the writer was trying to convey. It just didn't. Uh, Steve Pugh's art was pretty good, but beyond that, I thought this was one of the more uh, one of the more mediocre uh, stories in this in this issue six. Yeah, you just wonder if maybe it was one of those instances where just didn't have enough room to, to kind of get there. Yeah. Might have suffered from that. Uh, the last story is called Ally. It's written by Rex Ogle. Art is by Mike Norton. Letters by Steve Wands. This one sort of cheats at the end, and you get full color, not just red, white, and blue. So basically, it's the story of this boy who hasn't come out to his family and feels conflicted. Like maybe he should keep quiet. His life is fine as it is. You know, he, he could make things so much worse if he says those two little words, but what's the alternative? Is he living a lie, secret life, blah, blah, blah. And he, he goes home. He's undecided what he's going to do. He goes home one night from school, gets home from school, and his whole family, both his parents, it looks like a sibling and, and maybe a grandparent are, are watching TV, and it happens to be the announcement that Superman's making that he's Clark Kent. And that inspires this boy to tell his family that he's gay. And when he does, he opens his shirt. He's got a rainbow shirt on. It's actually all the rainbow colors. It's no longer a limited color palette. His family uh, gets up and they all embrace him. They accept him for who he is, which is, you know, great lesson. And, and the boy looks to the TV and Superman's still standing before all the microphones. And the boy thinks, thank you, Superman, for always uh, inspiring. So, eh, I mean, it's, uh, it's okay. I, I fully agree with the, kind of the whole idea of using all the colors to, for the end of the story with the idea of, you know, the, the rainbow being the symbol for uh, LGBTQ. So I didn't have a problem with that. Um, mostly what I have a problem with and this, this is in no way Rex Ogle's fault or whatever, but you're hitting me over the head with the fact that Superman revealed his identity as Clark Kent, which was a Bendis choice or an editorial choice or a co Bendis editorial choice. And it's a choice that I disagree with so vehemently. I think yeah. <laughs> it, in, in, in a lot of ways diminishes the character of who Superman is and certainly diminishes who Clark Kent is, that that part of the character. Because we haven't gotten any Clark Kent. We've, I've talked about it on a previous episodes, so I'm not going to get up on that soapbox again. Um, but I have a hard time. I can't judge the story on its own merits because right there in the middle of it is, hey, Bendis did this thing that messed up Superman. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was okay. I, I get the point of it. Yes, Superman inspired, um, but shouldn't shouldn't have happened. So, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about it. So, well, yeah, yeah I, well, just just that uh, when in numerous interviews, Brian, uh, Brian, writer Brian Bendis, uh, on when he re- had Superman reveal his secret identity, talked about how the revel- the revelation of the identity would inspire all kinds of people. And the only th- people it really inspired, I think, I think it inspired Toy Man to stop being a pedophile. Uh, or, or a villain in the in the in the DC universe, and and now now Toy Man is a vi- is a is an ally of Checkmate or something. But but beyond that, I mean, look, that was the whole point. That was the theory behind the bat, the Superman reveal. That that was this was the selling feature that Superman doesn't want to be deceptive anymore. He wants to be who he is, and so this builds on that. And so look, I mean, uh, this is a nice story. This is a nice story, and you know in honestly if if i am sure if there's just one or two you know people out there that actually read that superman comic and they felt that they could come out and and be their true selves and and their lives got better i mean all the power to it i mean i'm sure everyone's you know i don't want to take away somebody's enjoyment because we all get different things out of various comic book stories and this was this was a good one uh the this I don't I got nothing against this, but I I do share your I still <laughs> I still get upset when I think of the what I consider to be an, a nonsensical decision by by Superman who maybe a couple of people are are feeling brave coming out to their parents now, but you're still endangering the lives of your friends and family uh, by making such a boneheaded decision. But hey, that's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we will leave it alone. Uh, we are certainly not against people coming out and uh being true themselves uh we just kind of question the the inspiration for that not that superman's not inspiring uh but anyway on to the next title we're going to talk about batman secret files clown hunter the story is entitled scar tissue it's written by ed brisson the art is by rosie camp colors by andrew dollhouse lettering by simon boland um I normally love everything Ed Brisson does. I'm a huge Ed Brisson fan. I love the fact that he brings a groundedness, and I've talked to Ed about it. Every time he's on the show, I can't not talk to him about it because it's so fantastic the way he grounds these fantastical stories that he tells um, with superheroes and people with powers and and whatnot. Um, I didn't necessarily get that here. I am not a fan of the Clown Hunter character. Uh, I sort of feel like the same way I feel about the Joker, uh, I feel about Clown Hunter in that here's a person with no training, no special skills, no superpowers. So just like Batman would beat Joker in 30 seconds, any random adult, especially one with a gun or a weapon, would beat the crap out of Clown Hunter. Clown Hunter would be dead in 30 seconds flat. And somehow he manages to keep surviving. And it sort of happens in this story where he ends up having to get rescued at the end by red hood of all people and red hood offers to train him. So at least in that way, somebody over at DC is like thinking, well, we, we probably need to give this kid some training because he's going to end up dead. It doesn't make sense that he's not dead already. Um, and at the end of the day, I don't like the character. I didn't like the story. I thought like, I was glad I didn't pay any money for it. Not that I would ever, um, because if I see Secret Files Clown Hunter, I know I'm not a fan of the character. I'm not going to buy it. Um, so nothing against Ed Brisson. Uh, I thought the art was fine. Uh, you know, the pacing and, and like technically it's a good comic. 
it's just a character that that I don't like, frankly, and that I think should not exist. So, yeah, you know, this comic is clearly not for me. Uh, but maybe you had a different experience, Rocky. What did you think? Uh, no, I didn't. I actually were in agreement on this. I I don't like Clown Hunter. I think it's a stupid character. I think it's a terrible choice for a character. I I think that this is a this is a character. This is a deeply disturbed kid. Now I realize I'm talking about some a character in the Batman universe, and I realize that Jason, you know, Jason Todd, uh, Damien, we're not we're not we're talking about. I mean, you could write a you could write a you could write an entire library of mental health books on the Batman family, but yeah. uh, so I mean, I, I realize that, but I just find I think that Clown Hunter is is this kid not a maybe a bridge too far? I mean, yeah. <laughs> come on! I mean, I mean, this kid is this kid lost his parents, both killed by the Joker. Then he flips out during Joker War. He kills numerous clowns. He's this kid is absolutely nuts. I hate his wardrobe. I hate his wardrobe. I I don't like his hairstyle. I I don't like this kid at all. It's also his power set is ridiculous. I mean, I mean, this kid has can have no. There's no way this kid with a baseball bat uh, is going to scare anybody. I mean, I just don't believe for a second. Like, I never believed it in Joker War. I thought it was a joke, and I thought uh, I actually was siding with Ghostmaker at one point. Ghostmaker was going to kill this clown hunter kid in in Joker War, if you recall. <laughs> but Harley Quinn stopped him. <laughs> That was when Ghostmaker was still kind of an a hole, and uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm not, I'm not really getting it. But uh, but now I want to give Ed Brisson, the writer, there some credit because uh, I what Ed Brisson did. There's that wonderful expression, putting lipstick on a pig. He actually at least makes Clown Hunter. He he takes what I kind of a bad story, and he he makes it a little bit more tolerable. And I, I you know getting this kid's name is. Is it Bao Fam? B A O. How do you say that? Bao. Yeah, Bao. Yeah. Bao, Bao Fam. Bao. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, this Bao Fam kid is is tracking down all these other clowns, and and ultimately he gets set up and punchline from jail. Now, now punchline. Of course, we're reading her backup story in the pages of Detective Comics, and we're not really enjoying that too much. But apparently, punchline is sort of controlling things from jail. And she is uh, she's arranged it so that this clown hunter is is that Bao was finally hunted down and killed and um uh clown hunter you know it's very clear that clown hunter basically has ignored batman's advice because with in in joker war you know batman and in the events following joker war batman gave gave clown hunter advice basically saying hey man you know you you're better than this batman actually let this punk kid go i mean instead of sending him to arkham asylum I don't know what Batman thinks. Why does he put some psychopaths in, in Arkham Asylum and others, especially young, if they're kids, he just lets them go and wander around. I, I don't I don't know, but I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But in any event, uh, the whole thing, uh, at some point, this kid gets the crap beat out of him by a bunch of clowns. Eventually, all these massive clowns are, are attacking him. They're about to kill him. Punchline is behind him. And then there's a lot of dialogue. Punchline starts talking to to, to this kid and maybe suggests recruiting him. And then there's flashbacks with him in Gotham Academy where he was bullied. And of course, it's very tropey, very tropey. But Ed Brisson, how else are you going to justify this kid's psycho, this kid's mental state of mind? Well, okay, well, we'll make him the victim of being bullied. And yeah, he was, he was the kid. Uh, and this is the other thing that I find extraordinary. His parents were poor and broke, but his parents were killed by the Joker, and then his rich aunt and uncle come along, and they put him in a rich school, Gotham Academy. 
And then he's got no money despite being in a rich school. So then all the other schools, all the other students bug him for being rich or being poor. And then they beat up, beat him up and they attack him and they bully him. So this creates, this really builds and, and destroys his state of mind. And, and he hates being bullied. And, and as the clowns are beating the crap out of him, he's having visions and flashbacks, almost like PTSD from all the bullying he got while in Gotham Academy. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is like a Vietnam vet coming back from the war. Having Only we're talking about a, you know, a 14 year old kid. I mean, this. There's, this thing is wrong on so many levels, but in a twisted kind of way. I mean, I'm kind of chuckling as I read it. But anyways, I <laughs> at the end when Red Hood shows up, I don't even know why Red Hood would want to train this kid. Why would Red Hood choose this crazy kid? I mean, does Red Hood actually see some of himself in this kid? Maybe he does. But I wish I would have liked to have seen more of that. I would like to have seen more of that conversation between red hood getting to know this kid instead of punchline going through all the, the the diatribe that she did conversing with him because i think the more interesting dynamic is between clown hunter and jason todd but we just got a, a small smidgen of that near the end but overall i think this this is a miss for me if clown hunter has potential as a character it's going to have to be something that is more organically and and i think just developed this is this is a decent start, but I don't I don't buy it. I I, I you know Ed Brisson, you you did a good job, but there's only so much lipstick you got in your arsenal to put on this pig of a character or yep. clown, as the case might be. Yep, hundred uh, percent. All right, next up we have Batman Catwoman number six. Tom King writing, Clay Mann handling art and cover. Tamayo More as color artist. Clayton Cowles does the letters, uh, and we just heard that. Liam Sharp's going to be filling in on three issues of um, of Batman Catwoman. So Clay Mann is notoriously oh. slow. So I'm thinking that's what is uh, is prompting that so they can actually finish. Because this story feels like it's taken forever. And the problem I have with this issue is the same problem I've had throughout. And I've talked about it before. There's three different timelines and three different narratives going on. And it's not always easy to tell which is which. And being that the story is is already hard to follow and it's doesn't come out in the most timely fashion. I feel lost. Like every time they, it comes out, I feel like I need to go back and reread issues one through five, you know, before I can read issue six. And I just don't have the time to do that. So while this issue technically felt like a good issue and the art was absolutely fantastic from clay man, I'm still a little bit lost as to what the hell is going on. Yeah. No, what is the I, point of this? What is the point of the series? I still, we're, we're halfway through now and I don't know what the point of the series is yet. You and I need to uh, buy a bottle of crown Royal and just uh, get lost together trying to understand what this story is about because I'm, I'm, I'm lost as well. I, and, and I finally get to say something negative about a Tom King story uh, because I've been complimenting <laughs> yeah. him so much. I mean, he can't hit it out of the park all the time. So yeah. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but uh, no, uh, I, I, that's I, it. I, I mean, I'm, well, I'm done. I, I I won't go so far as to say it's a bad story, but I think, and we've talked about before uh, that Tom likes to experiment and tell stories in different ways, and and it can work. But I think this series is one of those examples of why Tom sometimes the way Tom wants to tell a story, it's not conducive to a monthly comic like this. They should have yeah. just waited and put this out as like one big hardcover or something. 
because yeah. um, and give Clay Man that the time, you know, like they did with Three Jokers for uh, Faybach and and uh, and Jeff Johns, because well, then you get the whole story. Because I think we're I'm not going to understand the story and be able to appreciate it for what it is until I have the whole story. It doesn't work as a as a sequential narrative, not with three disparate timelines going on that I'm not even sure how they connect to each other yet. Yeah. And it's very frustrating because, you know, this, this, this involves a character, Andrea Beaumont, who is Phantasm. And it's, it's essentially sort of a loose sequel to the, uh, one of the best animated films of all time. And that is Mask of the Phantasm. And, you know, uh, just here's the gist of what this story is when I'm trying to piece it together on the surface. It's, it's, it should be simple, more simple than it is. The Joker killed uh, Andrea's father. The, the the phantasm in the Mask of the Phantasm movie was Andrea Beaumont. And she was a former love interest of Batman. The Joker ends up ultimately, uh, Andrea Beaumont's phantasm ultimately ends up taking out the Joker. Uh, but then the Joker returns and essentially the Joker kills her father, Carl Beaumont. Now, Andrea returns his phantasm to kill the Joker for him ultimately killing her father and her son. And as you said, there's almost three different timelines here. There's two different timelines, three different uh, settings. And that, but so even though the phantasm in the present wants to kill the Joker, we know that the Joker doesn't die until the future because we know a future older Selena Kyle kills the Joker for revenge for what he did to Andrea. So the Joker must do something terrible to Andrea Beaumont. So I'm assuming that the Joker is going to kill her. I'm guessing. So if that's the case, then uh, why why doesn't so in the present in the present Selena in this issue? I don't understand why she's she's having drinks with the Joker. He over Christmas drinks and they're decorating a Christmas tree. I I don't understand this and and the dialogue and why did she not? Like I, I, I don't get it. Like was I, I thought maybe was this a dream sequence? She's talking to the Joker and and the the you know she she warned she told Batman uh, where the where the a bomb was last issue and 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 then the Joker leaves in this issue at one point and and then when the Joker leaves, all of a sudden five seconds later, Bruce Wayne shows up, and so didn't Bruce Wayne see the Joker leave his his fiance's apartment? Like, I just, I don't understand this. And this dialogue between the Joker and Selena, and she's, she's taking, she's doing tequila shots while the Joker's beside her. And there's Christmas carols in the background. I have no idea what Tom King is trying to say here. And, and again, then we jump to the few, we jump to the present with Selena talking to uh phantasm in the present. I, I, I'm lost. I, I really don't understand what's going on. And, and I fear this is not the same like his Rorschach or his Adam Strange where uh, I, I maintain the handle on, on the, the story. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass myself, but I read this issue three times and I still don't understand what, what went on. I, I'm, I swear to God, I read it three times and I read the preview. I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, I just I I don't get it. Selena's talking to her young daughter Helena. Helena asks her mother if if she killed the Joker, and we know she did. But but so what? So what if Selena in the future kills the Joker? I'm not sure why I'm supposed to care, and and I'm not really like I'm not I'm, I don't I don't understand how the past, present, and the future are linked yet. And 
I I fear that I'm not going to get rewarded at the end of this story like I like I feel rewarded with his Rorschach, and I I actually feel rewarded with uh, I enjoy his uh, strange adventures, and um, <laughs> in any event, I'll just leave it at that. It's it's not my cup of tea, uh, but you know maybe somebody out there is enjoying it. I thought this was most people were expecting a love story that this was going to complete the love story between Bruce Wayne and, and, and Selena Kyle that because, you know, with the failed wedding and everything, but this has turned into nothing but a story between Selena uh, and the Joker. Batman is an afterthought in this entire series. And we're at issue six, but Batman really is an afterthought. He He's barely in this comic in, in a substantive way. And that's what I find most disappointing. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And, Again, I think in in order to understand it, you you have to go back and like reread everything that's come before it, and even then, I, I think not enough of the story and and what's going on has been revealed to the point where I even think if you read all six issues in one sitting, that you would even understand what's going on. There's there's too much that's still a mystery here, um, which again, if it's coming out on a a monthly basis. Then I guess I guess we're okay, but I think we've already missed a few months. And um, I mean, again, Clayman's not the fastest. His art's spectacular, and that, that that kind of stuff takes time, which again makes me wish they just waited. And they did wait; like we <laughs> waited a long time. And I even talked about—I kind of sound like a hypocrite a little. I talked about the fact that there was such a long break between the end of Tom King's run and this starting to come out that I felt like it lost some of its momentum and it sort of hurt. Um, I just don't, don't know what the solution is, right? Like, I think it does need to be the Clayman art. Um, I guess the solution is Clayman needs to draw quicker, but that's not a solution because then his art suffers. So anyway, this is one we'll definitely have to revisit once all 12 issues are out and we can yeah. kind of look at the whole thing. Uh, all right, well, on to the next book. It's another one I didn't particularly enjoy, uh, kind of a theme this week. Nothing that that's just terrible, but just stuff that's just, I feel like, is not for me. I'm not the audience for this book. So it's Superman in the authority. Number two, I'm clearly not the audience for this book because it's written by Grant Morrison. I'm not a fan of Grant Morrison's writing. <laughs> Although I did think they did a great job in the first issue. It was one of the better Grant Morrison ish, uh, written, uh, written issues that I've, uh, that I've read other than all-star Superman, which I is probably, well, not probably. It is my favorite thing that Grant Morrison has ever written. Um, but a couple things. So I love the Mikel Yanin art in the first issue. And this one we have Mikel Yanin, but also joined by Fico Asio, Evan Cagle, and Travel Foreman because this is basically a story about uh, Superman and Manchester Black going around and recruiting who are going to be the other members of the Authority. Uh, we have Jordi Belair, Sebastian Chang, Dave Stewart, and Alex Sinclair as the colorists because they each color those different stories. So to me, one of the best things about the first issue was the amazing Mikel Yanin art. I'm not saying these other artists don't do a good job, but they're not Mikel Yanin in my mind. He's by far the most talented artist on this book, and I would have preferred to have him draw everything. Uh, maybe they're having a problem keeping it on schedule and this helped out and, and that's fine. I'd rather have that, I guess, than have it be delayed. Um, but this is only a four issue series. Two issues are done and the team has barely come together. So I end up asking myself, what's going to be the point of this? Um, so 
in the first issue, Superman's like, yeah, I'm getting older. I'm not quite as powerful as I am. I need, you know, I, I'm going to take matters into my own hands more so than I've ever done before in terms of setting the earth up for success once I'm gone. Well, we're halfway through the series. He just barely finished putting the team together. There's a lot to do in my mind to put the earth in order, you know, uh, get all their ducks in a row and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. How can you possibly get that done in only two issues, especially two Grant Morrison issues that he likes to stuff to the absolute bursting of seams with uh, all kinds of crazy references to past superhero stuff or some kind of just esoteric ideas. So I have no idea how this wraps up in only two more issues. Um, I love the Mikhail Yanin art in this issue. A um, little bit bigger panels than I'm used to seeing Mikkel use, which I also found to be an interesting choice based on how much uh, Grant Morrison does try to stuff in their different issues. I mean, it is kind of oversized. I guess it's like 30 pages. Um, so ultimately, I just thought this was okay. Um, you know, when you're recruiting people like Apollo and Midnighter, I mean, that's those are classic characters when it comes to the authority. But it's not a big secret that I'm not a big fan of those characters. Um, I thought the recruitment of the Enchantress was sort of weird, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so not sure how she's going to fit in with the, the team. Uh, Natasha Irons, I feel, is a good choice for the team, if not maybe a little on the unknown side. I think a lot of people may not a lot of modern DC fans may not know who Natasha Irons is. Um, she's the niece of John Henry Irons, who most people know as Steel, because we've all seen that great movie uh, starring Shaquille O'Neal, uh, featuring Steel. Uh, but yeah, and, that, and that's basically it. That's all that happens. Superman and Manchester Black go and they recruit Natasha Irons. They recruit uh, Apollo and Midnighter. They recruit Enchantress. Story over. Series half over. And nothing's happened yet. So... Eh, I don't know. I wasn't a yeah. big fan. What well, do you think, Rocky? This is this is this is Grant Morrison trying to outdo Grant Morrison. Uh, I'm. Um, here's <laughs> there's so much crammed in here. This is Grant Morrison making a commentary about society in 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 in, in actually quite humorous ways. Uh, I mean, there's a reference here. Superman call, says to uh, Manchester Black at the beginning, "Call me this, call me the samurai in autumn," which I googled, and that is a reference to a Pet Shop Boys song. And the lyrics of the song go like this: "It's not as easy as it was, or as difficult as it could be for the samurai in autumn." So it's a reference to Superman losing his powers, but at the beginning of this issue, he's he's working out and he's clearly losing his powers, but he's not as good as he, as he once was, but he's as good once as he'll ever be, is basically, uh, which is actually the words to a Toby Keith country song, which I, I prefer but to the Pet Shop Boys. But uh, in any event, Superman is clearly, he's still trying to stay in the game. Meanwhile, he's asking Manchester back about the recruitment. And what I find astonishing about this issue is that we're, We've wasted this entire issue on recruitment. I thought we, why, why can't we just get them all in a room? They all want to join. Why waste all this time? It's almost as if DC had all these pages and they needed to use them up because they paid for the art. So we, we have to use it. But as you said, Jace, there's only four issues here. 
there's no way we're going to get a satisfying story in four issues. That's what's, I mean, it's just impossible. I know that because it's Grant Morrison. I mean, Grant Morrison usually requires an entire series. And I actually prefer that. Now, having said that, I actually think that there's some, there's some interesting stuff here in this issue. It's hilarious what Natasha Iron, Irons does. Natasha Irons, uh, she suffers from ADHD. And she, she's in this particular uh, story, she is battling hostile digital life forms discovered by her father, who is uh, John Henry Iron Steele. She discovers a Wi-Fi consciousness that's threatening to materialize from a data space called Femtotech. And it's the internet made manifest. It's Nat versus Net. Natasha versus the internet. And this internet at one point even accuses her of having a, uh, accusing her of having a big ass, co- accusing her of having continental immensity of her big butt. And she, she blocks the villains. In other words, all this symbolism of blocking people on the internet, of, of, uh, body shaming, body shaming trolls attacker, just like when you shame people online. The symbolism here to the real world online trolling of the media and all that jazz and the fake news. It's, it's just laden throughout the dialogue here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always subtle. And it's in that way, it's so typical Morrison. Um, and, uh, yeah, not, now, what does that have to do with, like, I'm not sure what that has to do with, why did we need to know all that? Why not? Because ultimately the adventure that she's going to, that Natasha is going to be going on with the authority, with Superman and the authority, what's that going to have to do with this femtotech villain that she's facing? It just, it's once again, it's Morrison really cramming so much it's an info dump of these psycho crazy ideas that Morrison has a tendency to do. And at least when I read Grant Morrison's Green Lantern, beautifully illustrated by Liam Sharp, there was, there was 12 issues and there was two seasons there that I really enjoyed. And, and his, his story organically had time to grow and, and the craziness of it, you could appreciate it. And, but here, here I'm not really so sure. Grant, uh, the, the story called Hard between Apollo and Midnighter, they're both very violent and they're, and they're battling. Um, uh, they end up, uh, uh, battling this, uh, they're accused of, um, I'm not even sure who they're battling. It's not even that important. They're battling this, uh, this Frankenstein monster that's using children for spare parts to build more monsters. And it's really, it's really crazy. Apollo is upset. Apollo accuses, uh, uh, accuses Midnighter of cheating on him with uh, Gre- Gregorio de la Vega. He says, you cheated on me with that vampire choir boy <laughs> who those of us, we reviewed that DC Pride issue. That's Extrano, who goes by the name of Gregorio de la Vega. So it's a nice callback there to the to that Pride issue we reviewed. Um, but in any event, uh, Manchester Black, thank God he brings in the humor here. He calls them the world's gayest uh, unapologetically. Uh, then they go to recruit June Moon, the Enchantress, and just like literally pages of pages are wasted on June Moon's, you know, uh, psychopathy. I mean, she's she's got two minds. She's insane. She's got the Enchantress side, and she's got the innocent June Moon side. And uh, I think one of the one of the best scenes is in the in the very end, because this is uh. This feels like it goes on for quite a while, but finally at the end, I mean, we get Superman extending a hand to June Moon because all of June Moon's adventures and fighting this 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 demon that's in her head is uh, 
it's all taken place in her mind. And Superman tells her, you know, uh, she says everything's my fault. And Superman tells her, nothing, none, none of that matters. Take my hand. We're here to get you out. Junior in hell. Don't worry. We're going to get you out. And and then next issue, it's advertised that Superman and the Authority are in hell. And I thought, I thought this story was going to be very, very, very different. And I thought that we were going to have this villain from space. And we had all these, vil- like, where are the villains here? Like, we, we were teased a villain last time, which I believe was... I read was going to be ultra humanite. We got the shadow of the ultra humanite and these other villains. Where are they? We're not getting any of that here. And I got to say, I, I fear that a lot of people are going to read this, read this issue in particular and be completely turned off. Uh, I know Grant Morrison, so I'll, I'll stay in for the ride. But I, you know, I think a lot of people are just going to give this a hard pass. Unfortunately. Uh, sorry, your yeah. volume. Yeah, sorry. yeah, it's not. And it's not a big surprise because, again, it's it, it, I don't know why they chose to do a four issue. You know what I mean? Like you hear Superman and the Authority gets people excited. You hear Grant Morrison that gets people excited. I, I, I'm not one of them and that's fine. I don't need to, you know, DC doesn't isn't writing all their comics for me. I'm, I'm fine with them writing stuff that I know going in I'm not going to care for. And if I choose to pick it up, that's my choice. Just like multiversity, right? People praise that. I read the half of the first issue and was like, nope, this is not for me. And I, I haven't read it, uh, any of it. And I'm fine with that. Um, but creating a Superman in the Authority book and then only giving it four issues just seems you're setting it up to fail, which I just don't understand. So anyway, on to Shazam number two from writer Tim Sheridan. Uh, the art is by Clayton Henry, colors by Marcelo Maiallo, letters by Rob Lee. Um, I thought this was okay. Uh, I didn't think it was as successful as the first issue, maybe because we didn't get as many character moments, but we did get a big chunk of story moving forward. Um, I don't know that I'm the biggest fan of Tim Sheridan's voice for Billy Batson. He comes across as a little, I don't know, a little bit whiny, uh, but maybe that's just a function of him not having his powers. Uh, I was thought the way that Jeff Johns wrote him, Billy was a little more kind of self-aware and, and came across as a little more intelligent. Uh, but again, maybe it's just the, the pressure of not having his, his powers. Uh, and we do finally learn a little bit more uh, at the end about Dane, who apparently is the son of the underlord. Does that mean he's the son of like the devil? I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm not up on my DC demonology or whatnot, but yeah. uh Interesting story. Like we said, it, it's definitely tying into that Sheridan verse that he's building um, between the Future State Teen Titans, the Future State Shazam, Teen Titans Academy, and now this Shazam series. Uh, the art by Clinton Henry is fantastic. Colors are especially good. A lot of oranges and reds and whatnot because, yeah, you're you're in hell basically. So uh, Marcelo Maiello is a, a colorist I've been a big fan of for a long time. So no surprise that his coloring is uh, is top notch. So uh, I'll say this issue is good, not great, but I reserve my judgment to revise that grade once I've read the whole series. Two issues to go, and I will also say that unlike the um, issue, the series we were just talking about, issue two, Superman and the Authority, where we feel like it's been in two issues and the story is you know crawling along at a snail's pace, we've got two issues of Shazam. 
Tim Sheridan has given us a big chunk of story. A lot has happened. We've been introduced to new characters, new motivation. Billy Batson is is moving along in his quest to um, fix whatever's wrong with his powers and find out why the Rock of Eternity is down in in hell, for lack of a, a better word. So it's, it's so different, right, when you compare the two straight up. And I understand they're not the same writers or not the same characters, but I'm just talking about in terms of two issues of Superman and the Authority, two issues of Shazam, one feels like a huge amount of story. One feels like we barely scratched the surface. So different in terms of feel. So overall, like I said, good, not great, but potential there to, to possibly be um, even better than, than uh, like first impressions on Shazam number two based on the overall strength of the series. So yeah. what do you think, Rock? I, I thought this was this was de- decent. I, I was a little surprised by it. It took me uh, off guard. I really wasn't expecting hell to look like Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> that's what it was. I mean, they end up in in, in the underworld, and it it looks like Las Vegas, and they they end up dealing with a corrupt uh uh ga- you know corrupt uh, gambling c- casino manager by the name of Suluback, and Billy Batson ends up uh, befriending. Be- befriending the uh the daughter of this corrupt uh Sulabak, this this demon who is a casino owner and dane dane himself gambles and he cheats and he he cheats at the at the craps table <laughs> and uh, he, he uses magic cuz your magic isn't allowed apparently a lot of people have or have magical powers in hell but you're not allowed to use magic to cheat when you gamble in a casino in hell so shame on dane and they got caught and and it, it, you know, it's <laughs> it was very like movie like, and and then of course they're interrogating Sulabak is interrogating, uh, interrogating uh, Dane and Billy Batson, and and Billy Batson tries to, you know, he asks him, "What's your name?" and he says, "Shazam!" and it was going to be this great moment. What's my name? It's Shazam, and of course nothing happens per Billy. He, you know, so it's it's kind of it's kind of funny in a way, <laughs> and he's so frustrated. Why aren't I changing? And because he's got no control over his powers. And just to remind people, the reason why they're in the underworld to begin with is that they're looking for the Rock of Eternity. Billy Batson found out from Dr. Fate that, that the Rock of Eternity is somewhere in the underworld. And he he Billy Batson has lost communication with the wizard uh, who's granted him his powers. And his powers keep fluctuating. Sometimes he gets hit with lightning when he says Shazam. Sometimes he doesn't. Then when he's Shazam, sometimes his powers work. Sometimes they don't. So it's very frustrating. So he's looking for the Rock of Eternity. That's why they're in the underworld. Uh, the underworld. And... They end up ultimately being chased by Sulubak, this uh, this uh, casino uh, manager, and uh, Amarina, the casino manager's daughter, hides them. And there's some there's some sparks there. She's an attractive alien, and she thinks uh, Billy is handsome. And and ultimately, Billy discovers that the Rock of Eternity is indeed there. And when they are discovered, Dane, uh, uh, well, Billy Batson finally manages to turn into Shazam. Unfortunately. He, he's only partially effective because his powers eventually fall apart on him. The Sulu back is a demon in his own right, and he's got these powers. And there's this battle that ultimately is, ensues between Shazam and Sulu back. And then Dane, Dane ultimately turns into Nevermore, who is the son of the Underlord. I share your uh, question as to who who he's the, who's the Underlord here. Do, are they referring to Neuron? A neuron is sort of like the DC version of the devil. 
uh, he's the DC version of Mephisto for those uh, Marvel fans and is never more the son of Neron. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who the Underlord is either. But it's interesting, uh, Billy. We we know how how Billy ends up in Future State, but this is a interesting. This was humorous. This was funny. This was a, a fun ride, and I, I was entertained. But it was a marked shift away from Teen Titans Academy. I was kind of hoping for a little bit more action going on in Teen, Teen Titans Academy uh, because I've been enjoying the increased characterization of some of that the stories of those characters. But overall, I didn't mind this. It was it was it was okay. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was, it was, it was okay. But again, I reserve judgment because it could end up being fantastic. Yeah, looking it back, it could, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Uh, up next, the Flash number seven seventy three. First day on the job from writer Jeremy Adams. Art is by Will Conrad. Colors are by Alex Sinclair. Letters are by Steve Wands. I'm really curious about your thoughts on this one, Rocky, because we're sort of, for Wally West fans, this is a return to normalcy, I think is the way you put it uh, a couple of episodes <laughs> back. Um, and this is really the first issue we've get, gotten with, okay, this is the new normal for Wally. He's got a job working for Mr. Terrific, um, and Mr. Terrific obviously knows that he's he's the Flash, so he has permission to run off to deal with any emergencies at the drop of a hat. So... Uh, yeah. What were your thoughts on this one? Well, uh, I, I actually, I appreciate the return to normalcy. Uh, first I got to say that, uh, 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 Michael Conrad, the, the, the art here is fantastic. Is it Michael Conrad? Is that the artist? Cause I, uh, Will Conrad, I think. Will Conrad. Sorry. Yeah. Will yeah. Conrad. Great job on the art. I thought it was really good. Now, uh, I like the uh, the high points of this uh, issue. I think center around uh, center around, you know. I think a conversation between Heat uh, Wally West and Heatwave, and clearly, you know, Heatwave is uh, has been diagnosed with cancer, and um, and 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 really, that's this 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 issue is called first day on the job, and one of the things that was established last issue is that he's working for Mister Terrific. And, but Wally was wondering, why did Mr. Terrific hire him? And Mr. Terrific told him, well, you know, you know a lot about the multiverse. You have a lot of experience, but Wally's not a scientist. Wally just doesn't know a lot of the scientific formulas and the math of things. And uh, what I found interesting here is that Wally is actually shown to be fairly, fairly competent. He, he ends up on the job helping these other scientists that are baffled by the, on which, what material to use for a particular conductor rod uh, in one of their, in one of their machines. And, and Wally knows the answer that it's the metal. And, and he knows from his experience as the flash <laughs> and his experience with cosmic treadmills. And it's, he actually has something useful to say, and he's actually fairly, he's just, just as competent as the rest of the uh, scientists are who spend hours trying to figure out that they, all they need to do is change them, uh, change the metal from copper to aluminum, apparently. But in any event, uh, Wally Wally does a pretty good job here and he not only does he manage to solve the problem at the lab but he also uses his speed and does you know he also saves the day because he leaves the lab he ends up ultimately going and uh putting out a fire at the pier that was created by Heatwave who is struggling with who's struggling psychologically with his cancer diagnosis and uh and ultimately he talks heat wave down 
At the end of this issue, Heatwave is recruited by Amanda Waller of the Suicide Squad, and that's how Heatwave ends up in the pages of Swamp Thing number six that we reviewed last week. So there's consistency there. Again, there's that consistency and continuous uh, flow between the DC titles that I like to see. Uh, it might not be perfectly synchronized, but it's enough that I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there's that synchronicity there. Uh, one, one scene that uh, Jessica Cruz out of nowhere shows up as a Sinestro Corps member here, <laughs> fa- you know, out of the blue on only a one page. And this, I don't even know where this, where this came from. All of a sudden it shows Jessica Cruz in, um, who became a Sinestro. There's an editor's note that says she became a Sinestro Corps member in the Green Lantern annual 2021, uh, which, uh, which I'm sure we reviewed for the life of me. I can't remember. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you if you remembered because I I saw that note and I thought the same thing. Well, okay, we we covered that. Why don't I remember? And I was I meant to look it up, but when I read this, it was pretty late at yeah. night. I was out of bed, and I forgot to look today. I was busy at work all day. And then we started talking about it. I'm like, I got to remember to ask Rocky. Hopefully he no. remembers. Well, no, I, I actually do. I, I did know that she was a member of the Sinestro Corps uh, now. Yeah. I just couldn't remember exactly where I first read it. And I must have been there. But I mean, hey, man, look, I'm sipping water now. But sometimes I sip Crown when I read <laughs> comics. And I always I always regret it. But, uh, but I'm not going to stop. In any event, uh, something broke through. Jessica Cruz was unsuccessful in preventing some force of from heading toward earth and it looks like a sword it on the on the bottom of the page like on the bottom panel it looks like unless it was just uh that's the way the art is i'm not sure but there's some sort of uh force that's uh heading toward earth sector 2814 why is this in a flash comic i don't know but clearly i'm sure it's linked to something that Wally is probably doing with the scientists in in studying the multiverse and with uh, the lab with uh, Mr. Terrific's uh, lab there. And and so I'm not really sure exactly how that's we're going to have to wait for a future issues to see exactly what what happened. Maybe maybe it's a sword from Tom King's Dark Knights of Steel. (laughs) (laughs) You mean Tom Taylor's? Tom Taylor, yeah, yeah. Tom King. Tom King. I, even I, yeah, even I get yeah. confused all the time. Yeah, yeah, but I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. I mean, clearly, clearly, when you talk, when you're talking multiverse, when you're talking time travel, when you're talking traveling between different multiverses of the DC universe, Wally West and Barry Allen are always going to be a part of that. Yeah, based and on their power sets. I think that uh, Jeremy Adams. What I think the reason why there was so much, so much of this issue was based on a con, was a a conversation, character moments between Heatwave and Wally West, and I think the reason for that was, you know, if anybody can relate to what Heatwave is experiencing, it's it's Wally, and uh, because Wally, uh, you know, it, Wally went through quite the ringer with. Uh, Heroes in Crisis, and of course the the Flash Annual, which I know you remember because you and I talked about that. Oh, yeah. But uh, in any event, I I thought it was a nice character moment. I I will I I am quick to add that for all the all the for all the potential redemption that Heatwave experiences that by the end of this issue by 
uh, it's all thrown out the window when when your favorite character Amanda Waller comes along and recruits him for the Suicide Squad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, well, I mean, we already that, that 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 was what was sort of confusing to me. I mean, we already saw Heatwave in the pages of uh, of Swamp Thing. Yeah. So I was like, wait, how is he? Yeah. Well, not only that, when he was in the pages of the Swamp Thing, he was a real a-hole. Like he was, he could have, his first instinct was to burn Swamp Thing. He wasn't like he, so all this realizing that he's done wrong, he's he's close to death and all this other stuff and he's dying of cancer. Uh, he For him to be so brutal and, and, and lethal against the Swamp Thing, I think, I think it's a little bit maybe out of character, but maybe he's just so pissed off at Amanda Waller that uh, that's why he reacted. Uh, he reacted as he did in burning Swamp Thing. The moment he saw him, he 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 sought to burn Swamp Thing as opposed to uh, try to uh, uh, just just capture him. But in any event, it's uh, th- this was okay. My my, my overall my, my general feeling with this is this was definitely a feel good issue. This is what I this is what I wanted, and I I can't speak for other Wally West fans, but you know, I, this is what we needed. This is what, frankly, and I, with Joshua Williamson, his entire Flash run, Joshua Williamson could never ever just take the time to just tell a one story where we're just it's just character based and and just it doesn't have to be all action. It can just be a good d- character moments where you're getting to know the characters. Here you got the family, you got. You got Wally, Linda, the kids, some, some, some humor. I love this. I, so I like this. Is it, is it the best Flash issue ever? No, but this is the type of Flash comic that I think right now coming out of the, the redemption, I'll say in quotes, uh, of the Flash annual, I think this is what we need. So you, you, you don't feel the same way or you have mixed feelings about it? Uh, no, I just, I, I mean, again, it's not that Wally West is not my flash necessarily feel like I, I have a flash, um, you know, because Barry Allen was the first flash that I, that I read and I discovered, but then I read more years of Wally than the not. So I, I, I sort of, they each sort of scratch a different itch for me. So I'm not one of those that, you know, leans one way or the other. Um, so there were things I liked about the issue and I, things I didn't like, like you were saying, this was a very competent Wally, even to the point of surprising himself. Oh, I do have something to offer. I have gained all this knowledge from, you know, various things that I've learned with being trapped in the speed force and the way things vibrate and um, energy and that sort of thing. So he can bring something to the team and that was fun. Um, But I, I, the part that I didn't like was, and I I get what Jeremy, where Jeremy Adams was trying to go and, and you're right in that Wally, Wes is probably the perfect person to try to talk Heatwave down off the ledge because he can relate. But it, I, I don't know. It felt a little heavy-handed. You know, I felt like I was getting hit over the head with this emotion that was supposed to be poignant moments of of Heatwave. Um, you know, obviously distraught over the fact that he's going to die of cancer, and it just I don't know. It felt forced to me. So that was the part where the issue kind of fell down. But more bad than good, I would say. Um, Definitely love the moments with Wally and his family and his kids and the humor that uh, that Jeremy Adams brings. So, yeah, I thought overall it was a it was a solid issue, um, but it was a little little inconsistent for me. And as far as the Jessica Cruz, we have a very good reason for not remembering Green Lantern 
annual from 2021 hasn't come out yet. Uh, come, <laughs> thank you. <it> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come out. I just looked it up. It doesn't come out till August 31st. So our memories aren't as bad as, as we thought. We have not yet. We have not yet read it. So uh, we will talk about it when the time is right. Well, the reason why, while well, it was last issue, well, it shows, I think it was in Green Lantern. It was in the last issue of Green Lantern that we reviewed. Where it shows it just I believe they sh- it shows somebody in a it shows well, somebody was, talking yeah, to was, Teen Lantern, but she had a cloak on, but she had Jessica Cruz's eye like yeah, yeah. symbol. So that's why yeah. I assume that was a Sinestro Corps Jessica Cruz. And, so. Well, and the other part was we saw her in in the future state Green Lantern. That's right. Uh, become a, a yellow lantern. So yeah, between all that different stuff, it was a little confusing. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe when we do read the Green Lantern annual it'll it'll shed a little light on on this so yeah. uh anyway on to the next book which is normally a book i absolutely love and it, it wasn't that i thought this one was bad but again it just didn't quite reach the level sort of sort of how i feel about the whole week everything was just a little underwhelming nothing quite got there for me uh and i'm talking about catwoman number 34 from writer ram v fernando blanco is the artist jody blair handles the colors tom napolitano on letters um, you know, we saw at the end of last issue, Catwoman was thrown into Gotham Harbor. She was drowning. Batman was there to save her. And I, I was the first one was like, well, no, she must be hallucinating. Batman and Catwoman, uh, you know, agreed to, to kind of live their separate lives right now. They're not together. Well, it starts off in this issue and the two of them are, are looking over. They're like seated on a, a chimney or, or the edge of a, a building. And they're looking over Alleytown where the fires are going on and riots and whatnot. So, yeah, I guess I was wrong. Batman really did show up to save uh, Catwoman. And we find out that um, Detective Hadley used the bat signal to summon Batman and warn Batman that Father Valley was uh, attacking Catwoman and and she might need his help. And so Batman got there just in the nick of time. And all that's fine and well and good. The majority of the issue is a, a sort of a rematch of the fight between Father Valley and Catwoman and, and Father Valley seems to be one step ahead of Catwoman uh, at every turn. Um, and it sort of gets back to what I haven't liked about Father Valley as a character and why the story isn't working as well for me as it probably could. Father Valley to me seems like such, he seems like a character who's just the embodiment of ex deus machina, right? Like, Anything Ram V needs to do in order to tell the story he wants to tell, uh, well, Father Valley's th- that competent. Father Valley can pull that off. Father Valley's that much ahead of Catwoman. It doesn't feel realistic to me. Catwoman is better than that. Um, and ultimately, I'm, that's probably what's going to happen. Father Valley's uh, overconfidence will probably be his downfall. But I don't know. I, I just, again, it goes. It goes back to I'm just I'm not a fan of Father Valley. Haven't been from the beginning. I've said all along, and so this is a Father Valley story more so than it's a Catwoman story, even. So it's not a big surprise that this one didn't really hit for me. Uh, and I also felt like this wasn't Fernando Blanco's best work in terms of uh, art on the series. Um, a, a lot of times it has that cinematic Michael Mann feel, and it does at times. Certainly on the on the last page, it does. But there's other times, 
particularly the the scene or the scenes early on with Batman and Catwoman on the roof where it just didn't land for me. It it felt I don't know, uh it felt very it lacked any sense of movement. If they felt like very static images and the transitions from panel to panel, you know, we're talking about actual storytelling um just didn't land for me. So I felt like this was one of the my least favorite uh, issues of Catwoman so far that Ram V and Fernando Blanco have done. That being said, it's still an above average comic. I'm still completely invested. I'm not jumping off by any stretch of the imagination. There's enough here, even with Father Valley choosing to target uh, Selena's sister. Um, what happens with Detective Hadley at the end, which is, uh, you know, could be tragic and it's so interesting to me based on the fact that here's this guy who, who appears to have romantic feelings for Catwoman, but yet goes to Batman to sit like, he loves her so much that he goes to Batman. Like it's that go, it's that saying, right. That classic cliche. If you love something, set it free, Like he's risking any chance he might have with Batwoman by pushing him back toward the man that she almost married um, because he loves her that much. He wants to make sure she, she survives. All that stuff is interesting and intriguing to me that uh, Ram V is doing. But I don't know. I guess it all just comes back to I'm, I'm just not a fan of this Father Valley character, and he's, he's so prominent in this issue that it didn't really uh, didn't really speak to me. Uh, I'm also sort of curious. How, so how does what's happening here lead into the fear state? Because that's what we get in the next issue of Catwoman. I hope that this crazy fear state um, event, and we talked about it last episode. If you're curious about our our thoughts about God, why would anybody live? In, Gotham City. People reached out on Twitter this week. They're like, you're right. Like, why would anybody live in Gotham City at this point? Um, but anyway, I, I hope that that Fear State event doesn't disrupt too much of what uh, Ram V and his co-creators have, are doing here, because this is still a very, very good title, despite the fact that, the, for me, this was a little bit of a, a down issue. But I, I think I'm right in that you're a big fan of the Father Valley character, Rocky, so you've probably dug this a lot. Well, I... Uh, I have- uh, I've defended Father Valley. I, I thought that the buildup of the Father Valley character was very well handled, the buildup of it. However, uh, this payoff for him, I'm, uh, first of all, I want to say that I love this issue. Now, and I, I think that Father Valley is, is, was just a villain in this issue. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that the motivations for Father Valley to be obsessed with Catwoman make sense. I, that, it, between the annual, the father, the the annual did not do a good enough job justifying Father Valley's obsession with Selena. This issue still, I still don't buy it. He accuses Selena here of being a narcissist, and he he gives biblical quotes. But why his obsession with with Selena? He, father Valley accepted a hit. He's a hitman. He the Penguin paid Father Valley to take Selena out. So, but but if but he's more obsessed. He's this is more than just. Uh, a job to him. He's clearly obsessed with Selena, and and I'm not really sure why. I still I think Ram V didn't quite nail the landing in in dis- in showing what uh, Father Valley's true actual motivations were. Why why the obsession with Selena? It would seem to me he should be far more obsessed with taking out the Order of Saint Dumas than he should be just all of a sudden Selena Kyle in charge of Alleytown in a random city in, in Gotham City. But in any event. That, I, that doesn't actually bother me so much because this issue is so well... I think this is well written. This is a good written story. 
Batman rescues Catwoman from Father Valley. Detective uh, Hadley tells Batman that Catwoman is is in danger after the fact because Catwoman goes after Father Valley. She uh, Catwoman. I love I love how we're privy to Catwoman's thoughts as she realizes that Father Valley is is her equal and the only way uh, she can get close to him is to let herself get injured and so she does that. Meanwhile, what's going on behind the scenes? I love how Detective Hadley put together. That her that Selena's sister Maggie is actually in danger, and that her Selena's sister Maggie is actually the target of Father Valley, and the reason why Father Valley destroyed the church is because he wanted to create a line of sight between his battle with Catwoman and and where Maggie was staying at the at the cat's nest at 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 the cat's nest it, where Selena's uh, balcony is, where Maggie is on the balcony, and. Detective Hadley put up, put that together, and it wasn't Batman doing any detective work here. This was Detective Hadley, and as you said, whether he's we're we're not really privy to Detective Hadley's thoughts. I don't know if Detective Hadley, presumably, he has feelings for Selena, whether it's love or not. It's that's left to the reader to speculate on. You, you could certainly be right. He's he's driven by his caring for Selena. Clearly, there's some jealousy there. You picked up some jealousy from Batman uh, when when. Did, you know, Batman even asks Detective Hadley, you care for her? And he says, you know, maybe. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and so this this is so well done. Uh, and ultimately with Selena, uh, with, with the battle with Father Valley, and it comes at a cost. Selena fails. Selena would not have saved her sister Maggie. And that's one of the themes that's ran through the entire narrative is that everybody, Detective Hadley, in past issues, it, it's been said uh, through the narration and the exposition that Selena has said that every uh, the, the one, all those close to Selena ultimately end up getting hurt. And Father Valley wanted to reinforce that fact. Father Valley even stabbed one of the other uh, strays in earlier issues and left him to die in an alley. And now his final coup de grace was going to be killing S- Selena's sister. And he ultimately he would have succeeded but for detective hadley's sacrifice in anticipating and knowing what the target target was and jumping in front of the bullet and saving maggie's ultimately saving maggie's life and uh, at the end of this issue father valley escapes and i thought it was very well done as far as how does this tie in the future state i think i have a i have a theory i, I think it's going to tie in the future state i think it's going to tie in the future state well, because I think what's what's going to be happening after here is ultimately Bruce Wayne is going to be is going to be taken out and then ultimately kidnapped, and that's going to lead into the issues where future state issues where Selena and the Strays um, ultimately move to uh, rescue Bruce Wayne on on that train. Uh, in in any event. Uh, while we're on the subject of future state, I should say that future state is a little bit of a mess because it. It, some of Future State takes place five years from now. Some of it takes place ten years. From, it, it's kind of messy, so I don't. I don't really care. I I enjoy this story for what it is. I don't even. I love Future State. Those Future State Catwoman stories. We reviewed them. They were one of the best there is. Fernando Blanco's art here. Uh, it was hit and miss. Most of the pages here, I I quite enjoyed. Uh, there were some pages that I think were just amazing. Others, I agree with you, seemed a little bit sloppy. Uh, you know, he didn't quite have his precision line work that he has. But I got to say, man, between the narration and the art, 
this just felt like this was watching a good, like a good movie action movie taking place in New York City, man. This is this was a lot of fun. Ram V has done a good job. This is my uh, my pick of the week. Wow, you liked it way way more than I did. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, my pick of the week is actually the last book we're going to talk about. Uh, which is Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, issue number three, for another Tom King book. Big, big Tom King week this week. Uh, Bilquis Evely on art. Mateus Lopez does the colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. So before I talk about what I loved about it, Rocky, what do you think of uh, issue three of Supergirl? Um, I, this was, uh, this is a, a close second. This was good. Uh, let me just uh, get started started here uh, you know tom king you know three two compliments to tom king in this in this week's review and uh, you know one miss with uh batman catwoman but i enjoyed this i tom king uh this story picks up with with supergirl and this ruthie girl uh traveling to this uh planet koron they've been on this planet to, for of called Koron for three weeks and they end up in a place called Maypole and they're looking for they're looking for Krem of and Krem is the villain who is the person that killed uh, Ruthie's family and uh, in, in looking for him they end up they end up in this town called Maypole consisting of uh, blues and purples and the, the, there's blue people and there's purple people now it sounds for those listening on the podcast <laughs> that might sound very very simplistic and maybe a little bit silly but on this planet uh, you know it's this the, the racial themes here are are so in your face and so obvious that it becomes clear that the that these um, the the blues hate the purples and the purples hate the blues and <laughs> and the the question becomes that as they're looking for they're looking for creme but it 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 occurs to supergirl that there's no purples around what happened to all the purples and and she talks to all the all the citizens and ordinary citizens the mayor of maypole he's a blue all the all the people who live in in the city they're all they're all blues Where'd the purples go? Well, it becomes quickly evident that uh, it, that something happened to the purples, but nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody seems kind of nice, but then when you start asking them about the purples, they turn into a holes and they and they shun Supergirl and they and they shun Ruthie. And ultimately, after Supergirl later confronts the mayor, there's an attempt made to kill Supergirl and Maypole. Uh, pardon me, to kill Supergirl and Ruthie in their hotel room. <laughs> later later on at at the end of the day and and supergirl supergirl's powers are returning more and more and she finally becomes empowered enough that she takes she takes Ruthie with her and flies elsewhere on the planet look you know just trying to explore the planet and she finds where the purples are and it's a horrible scene it's a it's she comes across a genocide she comes across the sign that says no more purples and all the purples have been massacred it's in a genocidal mass it's horrible and she soon discovers that that ultimately this creme character who they're looking for ended up on the planet at the same time that this this traveling vagabond group of galactic terrorists called the Barbond Brigand, they were also on the planet 
and they like to randomly kill people and do what they want. And Krem, this Krem character befriended them and convinced them to, uh, you know, make a deal. And they made a deal with the blues and the blues in order to save themselves, sacrificed the purples and said, oh, if you, if you really need to kill something, kill all the purples. And that's what they did. And I, I'm not doing this story justice. The way it's narrated, Tom King does, an, does a really good job here. I think this story has resonance. It's, it's poignant. It's powerful. It, the, 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 uh, the, 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 ra- the inherent racism here and the, and the hatred of, uh, that, the, that the purples have toward the purples, it's not obvious. They, they, on the surface, they seem like nice people, but then clearly the indifference that they feel toward the purples and the purples are all, they're all dead now. An entire race has been wiped from existence because of indifference and hatred and Supergirl and Ruthie encounter this full bore. And one of the most, um, uh, I, I think one of the most powerful phrases in the entire story that I got out of it is, is that near the end, uh, uh, Ruthie narrates that just as every man has two faces, so does every place, and and that's and that just basically encapsulates the issue issue in my mind so well that yes, not only do we all have two faces, we can be nice one moment and yet we can be racist bastards the next. But in this case, the entire city of Maypole seem to be toxic, filled with toxic people that on the surface seem to get along with each other and they welcome all off-worlds. If you're an off-worlder and you go to Maple, that's okay. You're a blue. You can stay at a hotel, but as long as you're not a purple, and then then, then that's okay. Uh, but very powerful, very powerful. Uh, this has, this says, this could be a standalone issue. You actually don't need to read issues one and two to appreciate this. This could be a standalone issue in and of itself. I can't give Tom King higher compliments. This is, again, I'm just, I can't believe I'm, I'm, uh, good Lord, I'm going to turn into a Tom King apologist if I don't watch myself. But I, I'm, I don't know. Uh, what did you think of it, Jace? You, you obviously liked it too. Yeah, I, I loved it. And you, you made a point right there at the end that I was going to make as well in terms of it being able to be a standalone issue. Um, and I, I was going to go a little, a little further with it. When we talk about the story that Tom King is crafting here, along with Bill Quist Evely, who's doing an incredible job, the art is so spectacular, so detailed at times, so simple at times, especially the emotion she brings to faces and alien faces that don't necessarily have features that you know we're used to, and she still is able to convey uh, so much emotion and uh, body language. It's it's really uh, it's really done quite well. Um, and, and Thomas has given her a lot of credit on, on social media and Twitter, and rightfully so, where he just says, you know, draw a space bus. And then he, you know, literally that's what was in the script, draw a space bus. And she draws this incredible <laughs> yeah. looking uh, bus where he says, draw Supergirl and Ruthie in front of a door. And she tr- will just draw this most intricate looking cathedral type door with, you know, all this um, detail. And it, it just, it elevates the story. Um, but the story they're crafting on the surface, you know, Supergirl meets a, a young girl that she relates to in terms of the girl having lost somebody that she cares about. Supergirl lost the people she cared about on Krypton. The girl wants revenge. Supergirl takes it upon herself to help her. That's a four issue 
series it could be maybe even a three issue you could tell that story but what Bilquis and Tom are doing is they're they're taking that idea and they're expanding it so much through the narrative of allowing Ruthie to tell the story and and you know we know the that Ruthie's telling the story looking back right through context and and vocabulary and whatnot we've been able to tell that you know, Ruthie is looking back on this journey, on this portion of her life where she journeyed with Supergirl trying to get revenge for her father and expanding the story out to be able to tell, like you said, what could theoretically be a standalone issue of a Supergirl comic, but which is adding context, right? So when it comes down to the conclusion and the climax of the story that we're going to get with Cam of the Yellow Hills, um, that it's going to land that much more emotionally and in, uh, and with more impact because of the lessons that we've seen Ruthie learn along the way. Lessons that Supergirl herself had to learn the hard way. Um, and Supergirl clearly cares about this, this little girl, Ruthie, and is sort of shepherding her uh, and protecting her in a way, but also educating her, bringing her wisdom. Um, and it's, it's really shown in this issue when Supergirl knows that something will happen with these with the purples as they're called like rocky said and but she doesn't come right out and tell ruthie hey here's my suspicions right she just says climb on my back and she goes flying around looking and ruthie even comments on it how she's you know circled the planet and clearly was looking for something and was determined and i knew it there was something to this but supergirl doesn't take the time to explain it to her because Supergirl knows that no matter what she says, there's no words that could be adequate for the horror that she suspects happened, right? And so in a way, it's it's bringing knowledge and showing Ruthie that, hey, this is kind of the the bad side of things, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm educating you, but I'm not beating you over the head with it. Um, so I, I sort of appreciate that. And in a way, I think it's how Supergirl wishes that her... her education for lack of a better term might have gone um, rather than being so hit over the head uh, with it. So, yeah, I mean, this is masterful storytelling. And the last thing that I'll call out again is the vocabulary that Tom King has given Ruthie to, to speak with. I mean, she's like, what, like a 10, 12 year old girl, Yeah, <laughs> but he he's, gives her like this almost old English or Victorian way of speaking her vocabulary a lot of the words she uses, um, it wouldn't surprise me if younger readers might have to look up some of these terms in the dictionary, which I love, or I guess I say dictionary, how old am I, right? You're you're Googling them to find out what they mean. But I remember reading comics when I was a kid and I'd come across words I didn't know and I would have to look them up in the dictionary. Yes, I'm so old that there was no internet when I was a kid reading comics, ha, ha, ha. But I appreciate that. I appreciate the context and the, the flowery language because it gives the entire story a different feel. It elevates it. Um, and despite the, the fact that, you know, Ruthie comes from a family of very poor rock farmers, uh, it, it changes your perspective on her, it changes the way you see her. It changes um, like the intelligence level that you assume she has because she does have this sort of uh, flowery, way of speaking and, and this very large vocabulary. And so it, it's all coming together 
along with Bilquis Evely's art to really elevate this series. So there's a, I just wanted to give a call out to this sequence. It's my favorite sequence. Uh, Supergirl, uh, one, one person takes a gun out to shoot Supergirl in the face. And then the next page, it shows the bullet. Uh, Supergirl never even closed her eyes when she was shot in the face with the bullet. The bullet is, is actually stuck to her, to her left eye. And she just very calmly, like she could react in anger. She could rip this person apart that shot her, but she doesn't react in anger. She just casually takes her hand up and she flicks the bullet, which is crushed away from yeah. her face. It's absolutely beautifully illustrated by Bill Chris Everly. The, the best, my, fa my personal favorite sequence in the entire comic. And this look of abject shock and almost stunned quasi terror on the part of this person that shot her can't believe it and and she's so calm and she's staring at a, at a at a person that part that stood back and explained displayed indifference to the genocidal extermination of an entire group of people and the way that you know we all talk about let me tell you something we talk about how angry supergirl has been and that's been a theme and how supergirl's been written in the past but this is the composure that that Kara keeps through through all of this, the composure that she keeps, the fact that she doesn't lose it and go crazy and 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 just the the what she must feel and she keeps composure and part of the reason why she does and you touched on it, Jace, was she's got she has to be an example, I think, to to Ruthie. She doesn't want to let Ruthie know exactly what happened, even though Ruthie probably put it together, uh, but. Uh, this is this was so brilliant because this talk about if if anybody's got an anger problem, and if super if Kara has one, what what better way to put her test her metal than put her on this planet and to witness what she's and to discover what she's discovered, and how she reacts and how she's going to react moving forward, because now this Krem character is more than someone. This Krem character is now not just somebody that killed Ruthie's father. This is now this is now somebody who 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 partook of genocide. So the stakes are raised here. This isn't just another random murderer. Now this is personal for Kara. The stakes are raised. So not only is this a fantastic one shot, but this really raises the stakes narratively and emotionally moving forward. Well, I think it's it's very telling the last line, last two lines of of the issue where Ruthie says it's too big, we're too small. Uh, I have a feeling that that's going to come back to, to have more meaning. Supergirl will show her that even though they're small, they, they can make a, can make a difference. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I like all the elements of the creative team from Tom King's uh, pacing and uh, you know, kind of art direction and the, the vocabulary, like I mentioned that he's giving Ruthie to the line work from Evely and the colors by uh, Mateus Lopez, which we haven't mentioned that much. Um, Everything does have a bit of a muted feel, and the, the colors aren't real primary colors. They're, uh, you know, it's more of a kind of a muted palette, uh, which gives it a little bit more like a like a, almost like a fantasy sort of feel. Which, because this isn't a traditional, despite the fact it's a Supergirl story, this isn't what I would consider a traditional superhero story. So I don't think that traditional primary colors, which I typically enjoy on a Superman or Supergirl comic, because they are prototypical superheroes. I don't think they'd work as well as the palette that um, that Mateus Lopez is is using. And then the, I'll even call out the uh, the lettering 
from Clayton Cowles and the fact that, you know, we're getting these interesting shaped dialogue boxes from Ruthie as she's narrating it, where they, they almost look like they're little notes torn out of a, like a journal. Cause it's very much the, the feel that we're getting in the narration that Ruthie is, is could be writing this down in a journal or, or trans uh, transcribing it to someone. And so the font that, that Clayton Cowles is using it, you know, it's not a, a plain, simple font. It's, it's a little fancier and it helps to elevate the, the dialogue as well as his choice of, uh, of using these irregular uh, dialogue boxes. So again, the whole, whole creative team is, is firing on all cylinders. Um, I don't know. This could be another Eisner for, for Tom. It's, it really is that good. It's uh it's pretty, pretty spectacular. So, uh, all right. Well, I think that's the last, um, if there's any other books. Uh, there's a Scooby-Doo, where are you? Number 111. Uh, that's also coming out this week from, uh, from DC. If that's your, uh, that's your bag. You can definitely check that out. Uh, otherwise, that does it. It's sort of a, a shorter week, uh, which is always welcome. <laughs> yes, it uh, is. <laughs> only, o- only nine issues, one anthology, uh, obviously. But yeah, overall, not not the best week in in recent memory. I, I would say Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, definitely was my favorite, followed by uh, by Nightwing, um, number eighty three. So uh, nothing was absolutely terrible either. So I guess that's a, a positive. But I don't know. I just feel like this week, a lot of these books, I, I wasn't the target audience. I'm not a Morrison fan, you know, so that's not going to speak to me. I'm not a fan of cl- the character Clown Hunter, even even books I normally like, like Catwoman. This was a Father Valley centric issue, so it didn't it didn't land for me. So uh, but overall, it, it, was, it was an OK week. Yeah, no, it was it, again, I'm I'm I still uh, I still enjoyed I I'm still I enjoyed reading this week, and my my favorite was Catwoman, followed close by Supergirl. Nightwing is pretty good. Uh, Flash was a good family story. I yeah, I'm I'm happy. You know what? Uh, you know we talked earlier about all the stuff that's happening in the in in comics right now with Substack and everything else. You know one one thing that I will say is that you know there was a lot of talk early on about you know DC losing all this talent and you know all the big names are left DC and. You know, a lot of the the usual names uh, are weren't, weren't being called back, like Tomasi and Vendetti and uh, to DC, and a lot of creators that have worked with DC for decades are are not getting phone calls from DC, and younger younger creators with lit, uh, with less experience are are going to DC and being hired. Well, I got to tell you, from a from a purely, despite that, <laughs> I I'm enjoying DC right now, and if I'm brutally honest, I'm enjoying it more than I did prior to Death Metal. And uh, that's saying something. And so overall, uh, you know, whatever DC's doing, I like. I'm I, like I said. I, I hope it. I hope it stays up. As I said, I don't. We don't. I don't need to comment on the on all the other stuff going on in the comic book world right now. Other than to say that I'm enjoying DC, and as long as I'm enjoying DC, I'll be a happy camper. Yeah, I sort of feel like I, I agree with you to some extent. The highs. Are definitely higher, but I feel like the the lows, the things that are missing for me, are missing by a wider margin. The, so the the worst stuff is is worse than it was pre death metal. But I mean, if I'm giving, if I were to rate something a one or a two, is that that much different than giving it a three or four? 
<laughs> bad is bad, you know, but I mean, but overall, I think, yeah, the quality is much, much higher. And it's, I just feel like they're taking more chances and that, you know, taking chances leads to good things creatively. So uh, I think that's going to do it. I don't have anything to shout out uh, for this week. Uh, things are just too much up in the air and, and we're recording this a little bit early because Rocky's going to be out of town and I'm going to be out of town. So uh, do you have anything that you want to shout out before we uh, sign off? Uh, no, I'm if I I'm 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 preparing for a holiday here, so I'm I'm not going to give anything a shout out yet. If I if I happen to put something out, uh, it'll be a surprise, and uh, you know. So if not, well, I'll see you guys all next week. Yep, uh, and be sure everybody, if you're just listening on the podcast, you head over to YouTube to the Comic Boom channel, uh, subscribe so you know when Rocky does put up new stuff. Ring that notification bell so you're notified. And also give this uh, episode a like. Conversely, if you're watching on YouTube and you don't always have time to sit here and watch our beautiful faces, you can always subscribe to the podcast. You can listen in your car, on the subway, or what have you. Just do a search for The Comic Source on any podcast platform or on the podcast app from your smart device. So as always, Rocky and I appreciate your support and for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time. See you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.